0: This is really old-fashioned embezzlement. This is just taking money from customers and using it for your own purpose.
1: A congressional hearing was held today on the collapse of the cryptocurrency exchange FTX. It's Tuesday, December 13th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, we'll have the latest on that hearing as well as the arrest of the company's former CEO on charges of fraud. Also ahead, scientists announced a major breakthrough in nuclear fusion. They were able to coax more power out of an experiment than they put in. And President Biden has signed the Respect for Marriage Act into law at a White House ceremony. It's 401. Now this news.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. U.S. government prosecutors allege one of the biggest financial frauds in American history was run by the disgraced cryptocurrency executive, Sam Bankman-Fried. NPR's Alina Selic reports the founder of the FTX crypto exchange is facing charges of fraud and conspiracy for allegedly misusing customers' money.
3: Sam Bankman-Fried is facing criminal charges from the U.S. Attorney in the Southern District of New York and civil charges from the top U.S. financial regulators. Prosecutors allege Bankman-Fried lied to both investors and customers of his FTX exchange, funneling money from FTX into his own hedge fund called Alameda, using it to pay off debts, buy real estate, and make political contributions in violation of campaign finance laws. Last month, when FTX collapsed, investigators say customers lost more than $8 billion. Bakeman fried was arrested Monday night in the Bahamas, and he's expected to be extradited to the U.S. The investigation is ongoing. Alina Salyuk, NPR News.
2: A group of GOP-led states has asked a federal appeals court to pause a judge's ruling that would end pandemic-era restrictions at the southern border. NPR's Joel Rose reports those restrictions, known as Title 42, are set to end next week.
4: Republican attorneys general from 19 states filed an emergency motion with the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals late Monday night. They're asking the court to stay a federal judge's ruling that found the Title 42 restrictions unlawful. The Title 42 policy, first put in place by the Trump administration, has allowed immigration authorities to quickly and repeatedly expel migrants without giving them a chance to seek asylum. The Biden administration says it's preparing for the restrictions to end on December 21st at a time when border apprehensions are already near record highs. The states are asking the appeals court to rule on their stay request by this Friday. An appeal to the Supreme Court could be next. Joel Rose, NPR News.
2: Federal scientists have for the first time succeeded in generating more energy from fusion than they used to start the process, reaching this milestone to decades. Energy Secretary Jennifer Grenham describes the implications for combating climate change. If we can advance fusion energy, we could use it to produce clean electricity, uh, transportation fuels, power-heavy industry, so much more. It would be like adding... Um, a power drill to our toolbox in building this clean energy economy. The demand for heat is expected to keep climbing as a powerful winter storm sweeps more than a dozen states this week. The central and southern U.S. today and by Thursday, the East Coast. The National Weather Service is warning of more heavy snow, blizzard conditions, strong winds and ice The Northern Plains and Upper Midwest residents in the South face severe thunderstorms that produce excessive rainfall, floods and tornadoes, at least two of which have been reported in North Texas and Oklahoma. From Washington, this is NPR News.
1: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. A hearing to consider pardoning two siblings convicted of sexually assaulting several children at their family daycare in Malden nearly 40 years ago got off to a contentious start. Gerald Emerald and Cheryl Emerald Lafave were not present at today's Governor's Council hearing. Counselor Marilyn Devaney criticized that decision.
5: I didn't know until I sat here that they weren't coming, and I want that on the record is wrong.
1: Devaney added that she had a personal connection to the case.
5: My friend's child was at that daycare, and she was sexually abused.
1: But James Sultan, the attorney representing the Amaralts, argued the children were coerced into accusing his clients.
5: The
6: unjust conviction of the Amaralts, based on such tainted testimony, are a relic of an earlier time, the product of widespread hysteria and investigative
1: blunders. Governor Charlie Baker recommended the pardons last month. It's unclear when a decision may be made. The largest park in Boston is getting a major makeover. City leaders unveiled the Franklin Park action, today, action Plan today. The $23 million project will include new lighting, upgraded trails, and the renovation of the historic Elma Lewis Playhouse. It was named for the woman who began the tradition of community concerts in the park. The plans for the renovations to the park drew on feedback from more than 6,000 people to create a more inviting space. The City of Boston is launching a grant program to help fill vacant storefronts in the city's commercial hubs. It'll offer registered businesses up to $200,000 to open a new business or expand an existing one. The money can be used to cover rent, startup costs, and other expenses. In the first round, the city will choose 10 to 15 businesses that have been disproportionately affected by the pandemic. Applications are due by February 17th sports the Bruins host the Islanders tonight at the Garden the Celtics take on the Lakers out in LA in the forecast mostly clear tonight the low around 24 sunny tomorrow the high around 37 degrees mostly cloudy and 43 degrees on Thursday right now it's 39 degrees in Boston this is 90.9 WBUR
7: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com.
8: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro.
9: And I'm Juana Summers. This morning, scientists announced a breakthrough in the field of nuclear fusion. Fusion is the process that powers the sun. Scientists have been struggling for decades to make it work here on Earth. NPR's Jeff Brumfield has this report on the breakthrough and what it could mean.
10: To give you a sense of just how long this took, listen to President Biden's science advisor, Arati Prabhakar. She remembers working on nuclear fusion in 1978.
3: They got a picture of this. I'm wearing my bell bottoms. I've got long black hair and I show up and I'm a 19-year-old kid and they give me a laser to work on.
10: Prabhakar was working at the Department of Energy's Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory and the job was this, to try and use that laser to squish lightweight atoms of hydrogen together until they fused. It's a process known as nuclear fusion, and it can generate enormous amounts of power with no greenhouse gases. She worked on it for the summer, and then she left.
3: I went off and didn't do anything more about fusion, but the people I worked with and their successors kept going.
10: And today, decades later, they announced they'd finally done it. The breakthrough came at Livermore's $3.5 billion national ignition facility. Mark Herman is the scientist in charge. He says there's been lots of setbacks and disappointments along the way, but the team never gave up.
8: Ultimately, that determination and grit is really what enabled this exciting success.
10: Last week, researchers pointed 192 laser beams at a tiny diamond sphere the size of a peppercorn. Inside was hydrogen fuel the lasers went zap, the peppercorn imploded, and the fuel ignited in a fusion burn that released more energy than the lasers put in. They measure energy in something called megajoules, and this fusion made about 3.15 megajoules, which sounds cool, but it's not exactly that simple because lasers actually need a lot of juice from the electricity grid to work.
0: The laser pulled a more than 300 megajoules off the grid. And then the fusion
11: energy that came out was, again, about 3 megajoules.
10: In other words, the facility still used way more power overall than it produced. Ryan McBride is a nuclear engineer at the University of Michigan who wasn't involved in this breakthrough. He says today's milestone is important.
12: It is a big scientific step.
10: But he says there are several more obstacles to making laser fusion work. To generate steady power would require lasers to zap multiple pellets every second.
12: So it's like, you know, that's that's a lot of pulsing. There's a debris field left as these things are blasted. And you'd have to, like, clear that debris and then inject another one, have all the lasers hit it. Day after day
10: for months and years, McBride says he doubts laser fusion could produce electrical power anytime soon.
12: It's many decades as far as I can see.
10: Meanwhile, the U.S. is seeking to cut its greenhouse gas emissions in half by 2030, a target that looks to be too close for fusion to help. Jeff Brumfield, NPR
8: News. The now disgraced golden boy of crypto was arrested at the request of the U.S. government at his home in the Bahamas last night. And today we learned that Sam Bankman-Fried faces more than half a dozen criminal charges related to the collapse of his crypto empire and civil charges from financial regulators. NPR's David Gura is following this fast-moving case. And David, uh, a lot of pieces of this story have fallen into place in the last 24 hours. What's the picture that emerges when you put them all together? Well, what we have from prosecutors
13: is a portrait of somebody who seemed to have had no hesitation taking customers' money to finance his own investments. And they allege he also used customers' money to buy luxury real estate, to make campaign contributions, and to try to plug holes that kept getting bigger and bigger as we saw this huge drop in the value of cryptocurrencies earlier this year. Gary Gensler, the chair of the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, said Bankman-Fried, quote, built a house of cards on a foundation of deception, while telling investors that it was one of the safest buildings in crypto. And, you know, Ari, there's another picture that's emerging. It's one of a very aggressive, very fierce government response. Remember, it was just a month ago, Bankman-Fried stepped down and FTX filed for bankruptcy. Prosecutors seem pretty outraged by the number of people who may be victims of fraud here and by the amount of money that seems to have just disappeared. So far, FTX says it can't find $8 billion. So this is shaping up to be a big battle for law enforcement and for regulators, Ari, and it's one they very clearly want to win.
8: What are they most concerned
13: about? What are the biggest charges? Beckman-Fried is accused of defrauding investors in FTX and customers, many of whom were small-time individual investors. And beckman who was a big political donor, has also been charged with violating campaign finance laws. A you know, lot's been made of the sprawling nature of FTX and the complexity of crypto. Well, at a news conference this afternoon, Michael Driscoll, the FBI assistant director in charge of this case, said none of that matters.
6: This case is about fraud. Fraud is fraud. It does not matter the complexity
10: of the investment scheme. It does not matter the amount of money involved. If you mislead and deceive to take what does not belong to you, we will hold
13: you accountable. And beckman faces some serious charges here, and this is the type of case that could land a person in prison for decades. At the heart of this indictment and of the complaints from regulators is this cozy relationship between FTX and Bankman-Fried's private crypto hedge fund. It was called Alameda Research. What's alleged is there was no wall whatsoever between these two institutions. Bankman-Fried was integrally involved in both of them, and money from FTX customers was used to pay Alameda's debts, to pay its bills, really to keep it afloat. Well, the SEC says there was no meaningful distinction between FTX customer funds and Alameda's own funds, and Bankman-Fried used Alameda as, quote, his personal piggy bank.
8: You know, Sam Bankman-Fried was pretty talkative in the days leading up to his arrest. Now, given the seriousness of these accusations, how has he been handling things?
13: Yeah, he appeared in a courtroom today in the Bahamas where FTX is headquartered, and negotiations started over his bail and his extradition. Bankman-Fried was supposed to testify before Congress today at a hearing on the collapse, and That hearing before the House Financial Services Committee went on without him. It was our first chance to hear from John Ray, the new CEO of FTX, and he painted a bleak picture of the work ahead for himself.
0: I've just never seen an utter lack of uh, record keeping. Uh, Absolutely no internal controls whatsoever. As for Bankman-Fried,
13: his lawyer said in a one-sentence statement today, he is, quote, reviewing the charges with his legal team and considering all of his legal options, Meanwhile, the investigations continue, and at his news conference this afternoon, Ari, U.S. Attorney Darian Williams spoke directly to people who may have participated in the activities that led to FTX's implosion. I would strongly encourage you to come see us, he said, before we come see you.
8: NPR's David Gura, thanks a
13: lot. Thanks, Ari.
9: South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa avoided impeachment today. This comes after weeks of uncertainty following a corruption scandal that involved cash that was hidden in and stolen from a couch that belonged to Ramaphosa. But there are other political challenges awaiting the president. To help us sort all of this out, we're joined by Justice Malala. He's an author and political commentator who splits his time between Johannesburg and New York. Welcome.
14: Thank you. It's good to be here.
9: Good to have you. So, Ramaphosa survived possible impeachment, but can you just walk us through what brought South Africa to this point?
14: This year, uh, a man who he had removed from being the spy boss alleged that Ramaphosa had covered up a theft at his farm. It seems as if it was $580,000. U.S. And the big question is, what is the president of the country doing with 580,000 U.S. dollars stuffed in his cart?
9: Ramaphosa is someone who ran on an anti-corruption platform back in 2018. He was also a close ally of Nelson Mandela. I know that you're in New York right now, but what have you heard from South Africans about what they think about the story that you've just shared with us and about the development today that he avoided impeachment?
14: Many South Africans are Appalled at the details of this, and many South Africans at the same time are saying, What's really going on here? So there's a bittersweet reaction to this: that, well, you know, he's won this one, but he hasn't really taken South Africans into his confidence and said, My fellow countrymen, my fellow country women, this is what happened. And I'm sorry, he's hunkered in, he's in his bunker, and has not communicated for six months about any of this.
9: You mentioned that Ramaphosa has kept a very low profile recently. We've heard that he even considered resigning. How stable are things for him? Now, what is the future outlook for his leadership?
14: The African National Congress holds its conference every five years. It chooses a new leader at these conferences. He served one term as leader of the party and um, he's running for a second term. And so Cyril Ramaphosa faces this one fight that's coming up. My view is that after his win today, he will win again. He will be re-elected as president of the ANC, and he will continue. However, I do believe that this scandal has tainted him hugely. There are seven different state enforcement agencies which are investigating. So it will continue to dog his uh, presidency going forward. And I suspect down the line, he will be forced to resign.
9: So taking a step back here and thinking about this big picture, what do these recent events tell you about the strength of South Africa's democracy?
14: First of all, you have the chattering classes, the intellectuals, business leaders, all saying, Cyril Ramaphosa is all we've got, he's the best guy to lead right now. And it's shocking, to be honest, that we only have one a person we think is capable of protecting the institutions, holding up our democracy, that if this one person leaves, then we have no one else. But the second one for me is that I think it's the end of the road for Nelson Mandela's party, the African National Congress. I think that it has been engulfed by corruption, by infighting, and that it will diminish and maybe even die over the next 20 years.
9: That is Justice Malala, author and political commentator. Thank you so much for joining us today.
14: Absolute pleasure. Thank you.
8: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
1: This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown, 38 degrees in Boston at 418. Ahead on All Things Considered, President Biden has signed the Respect for Marriage Act and Law at a White House ceremony. That's ahead here on WBUR.
15: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com slash gig.
1: On Wall Street, stocks closed the day higher. The Dow is up three tenths of a percent at 34,109. The S&P rose three quarters of a percent to close at 4020, and the Nasdaq was up about one percent and the day at 11,257. In business news, Cambridge-based Moderna is reporting progress in its efforts to create a vaccine for skin cancer. The company says a trial has found people taking its vaccine and immunotherapy had a 44% reduction in the risk of death of cancer or cancer reoccurrence. That's compared to those who only had immunotherapy. Moderna is working with the pharmaceutical company Merck on the combined treatment uses the same technology behind COVID-19 shots another trial is planned next year Moderna stock rose 21% in trading today
7: we are funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software for Technical Computing and Model-Based Design, Accelerating the Pace of Discovery in Engineering and Science, MathWorks.com. And Whitehead Institute. Join Director Ruth Lehman on January 26th in conversation with science writer Carl Zimmer. wi.mit.edu events.
6: Now's the time to make your tax-deductible gift to WBUR for 2022. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287.
1: In the forecast, it'll be mostly clear tonight. The low's around 24 degrees. Sunny tomorrow, the high around 37. Mostly cloudy, 43 degrees on Thursday. Rain is likely on Friday. Right now, it's 38 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR.
16: Support for NPR comes from this station, and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and social security. Fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Athena Health, creating connected healthcare technology designed to improve patient outcomes and increase efficiency of healthcare practices and organizations. Learn more at com.
9: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm
8: Ari Shapiro. Today, President Joe Biden signed into law a landmark piece of legislation that recognizes same-sex and interracial marriages.
17: For most of our nation's history, we denied interracial couples and same-sex couples from these protections. We failed. We failed to treat them with equal dignity and respect. And now, the law requires that interracial marriage and same-sex marriage must be recognized as legal in every state in the
8: nation. This is the kind of celebration we would not have seen at the White House a decade ago. To talk about Biden's evolution and the countries, we turn to NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro. Hey, Domenico. Hi, Ari. Let's start with President Biden's evolution on same-sex marriage. He has had a long career in politics. How have his views changed over time?
18: Yeah, and they have changed. I mean, the president is someone who went from in the 1990s, for example, voting in favor of the Defense of Marriage Act, which defined marriage as between a man and a woman, to pushing for this bill, the Respect for Marriage Act, which repeals DOMA. You know, here was Biden in 2008 during the vice presidential nominee's debate. Asking the question is the late journalist Gwen Ifill.
19: Let's try to avoid nuance, Senator.
18: Do you support gay
19: marriage?
17: No. Barack Obama nor I support redefining from a, from a civil side what constitutes marriage. We do not support that.
18: But just four years later, not that long, here was Biden on NBC's Meet the Press.
17: I am absolutely comfortable with the fact that men marrying men, women marrying women, and heterosexual men and women marrying men are entitled to the same exact rights, all the civil rights, all the civil liberties. And quite frankly,
18: I don't see much of a distinction uh, beyond that. I mean, it's quite the turnabout, you know, and this was a seminal moment for Biden's position and the country's. And it essentially forced President Obama just days after that to take the same stance and change the conversation on same-sex marriage.
8: That was such a quick turnaround. What led to that rapid evolution?
18: for one public opinion was moving you know democrats had been really delicately walking this line many calling for civil unions but not marriage explicitly after george w bush in 2004 used the issue as a way to fire up the evangelical right which helped him get reelected you know by 2012 though the country was in a pretty different place The split was, uh, you know, still there was a split uh, trending towards support. And Biden, you know, as he's known to do, spoke pretty bluntly. Uh, Since then, the shift, though, has been dramatic. Our latest NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll, which is going to be released Thursday, shows 68 percent are in favor of same-sex marriage. Uh, You know, it was still a bit of a surprise, I have to say, though, that the bill got through because it wasn't clear they could get the 60 votes to overcome a filibuster because Republicans really have been much slower to embrace same-sex marriage. Uh, But a dozen Republican senators voted for it. 39 Republicans in the House did, too. And it's really reflective of how the country, even Republicans, are changing, even though GOP support, um, you know, has been much less uh, in our surveys, less than a majority. Art, we've been describing
8: this as now a law that protects same-sex and interracial marriage beyond that time. explain exactly what it does and does not do
18: yeah not everyone's celebrating this as the be-all end-all and it's not you know this was largely passed because of the threat that the conservative supermajority at the supreme court after the dobbs ruling that took away the right to an abortion you know could overturn other rights including same-sex marriage you know but while this bill gives federal benefits to same-sex couples, make sure those marriages are recognized across state lines, it doesn't guarantee that states won't deny marriage licenses to gay couples again if the court overturns it. You know, and I have to say, one of the most overlooked things in this bill, you know, isn't just about same-sex marriage, but also interracial marriages, easy to overlook, because 94% in the latest polling say they approve, but majorities didn't approve until the late 1990s, which isn't that long ago for some of us. NPR's <laughs>
8: PR's Domenico Montanaro, thank you. You're welcome.
18: If you like to root for the underdog,
9: maybe you have already been following Morocco. The men's soccer team is now the first from an African or Arab nation to reach the semifinal of a World Cup. They've just knocked out powerhouses Spain and Portugal. Tomorrow, they look to take down France. And nowhere are fans more excited than in Morocco. Aziza Sibaha is a senior TV host for France 24 and joins us now from Rabat. Welcome. Hi, Juana. So can you just describe for us what it has been like there in Morocco with this historic success that the men's team is having?
20: How are fans reacting? Oh, it's just crazy here, actually. This historical achievement, everybody's smiling like everybody's talking about having faith. And now they believe in it and they want to go all through to the finals. So I think that the national squad shred a huge glass ceiling. So
9: this has been an incredible run for Morocco. As we mentioned, this team is the first African and Arab team to go this far in the World Cup. Have people been soaking that
21: in?
20: Oh, yes. And uh, if I may just uh, remind you that Walid Regragui, the coach, said this morning, we didn't come here just to say that we are the first Arab and African country to get to the semifinals. We want to go all through to the finals. So now, like everybody is believing in it and it's really changing. All the Arab countries and all the African countries are now behind this squad. And I think that that's one of the things that can help and that what make the difference till now, I think.
9: You know, we have all seen these scenes after matches when some of the players run to the stands to celebrate with their mothers and they're incredibly heartwarming. Has that affected people back home seeing those lovely moments that we've all watched?
20: Absolutely. Actually, the Moroccan coach wanted this time to bring the moms uh, with the players. I think that he wanted to give a certain human dimension and a family dimension. And that talks absolutely to the Moroccans. Uh, a lot of people know here in Morocco what's the relationship between all men and their moms. Uh, so people kept identifying themselves to the players and feeling exactly the same thing. But on the other hand, also, I met with a lot of moms, actually on the street just a cheering for the team. And they were like, they are our children. And now uh, that helps also shifting the mindset toward women as supporters as well. You know,
9: this has obviously been an incredibly exciting World Cup for supporters of the Moroccan team, but it is hard not to think about past colonial ties in Wednesday's face-off between France and Morocco, but also in the previous matches with Spain and Portugal, have fans brought those tensions up to you when you've been speaking with them?
20: A lot of players are French and Moroccan, but it's all about football more than anything else. And they want to face the defending champions. They want to face some of them, like Ashraf Hakimi, for example, is playing in the PSG with, with Mbappé, with Kylian Mbappé. So they, he will be facing his best friend, for example. Mm. They want to face the champions tomorrow.
9: There is a lot on the line for Morocco tomorrow in the semifinal match. Just generally speaking, how are people preparing for this match versus France tomorrow? What's that look like there?
20: Well, there are there are some fun zones here in, in Casablanca, for example. But here in Rabat, a lot of cafes, a lot of restaurants, a lot of hotels are also sitting fun zones with a huge screens so that everybody can uh, watch them. There are a lot of places where we can see the flags everywhere. I, I'm seeing a lot of people with the national jersey as well. And that's, that's a good think also, because I think that people um, in this time exactly, even politically, internationally, they needed some good vibes and they're getting them from the national team in Morocco.
9: That's Aziza Sibaha, senior TV host for France 24 in Rabat, Morocco. Thank you so much for being here and hey, good luck tomorrow.
20: Thank you.
8: This is NPR News.
1: This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Ahead on All Things Considered, inflation eased in November thanks to falling gasoline prices. The news comes on the eve of another likely interest rate hike by the Fed. That's just ahead here on WBUR. In the forecast, it'll be mostly clear tonight. The lows around 24 degrees. Sunny tomorrow, the highs will be around 37. Mostly cloudy, 43 degrees on Thursday. Right now, it's 38 degrees in Boston.
22: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash way to wealth I'm Darrell C. Murphy. WBUR's independent journalism is essential to
10: our democracy. Listener support is what keeps WBUR independent. It's the largest share of our funding. As you make tax deductible year end contributions to organizations that make a positive difference in your life and in our communities. Put WBUR on your list. Give now at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287.
23: Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Federal prosecutors have gave, have given more details today about the criminal charges filed against the founder of the cryptocurrency exchange FTX. Sam Bankman Freed was arrested in the Bahamas last night, one day before he was scheduled to testify before a House Oversight Committee about the collapse of the exchange one month ago. 30-year-old Bankman Freed was indicted on eight criminal counts including Wire fraud and conspiracy for misusing customer funds, here's U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, Damian Williams.
13: We charge that from 2019 until earlier this year, Bankman-Fried and his co conspirators stole billions of dollars from FTX customers. He used that money for his personal benefit, including to make personal investments and to cover expenses and debts of his hedge fund, Alameda Research.
23: The new CEO of FTX calls it one of the worst business failures he's seen. John Ray III helped restructure Enron after its collapse 20 years ago. Inflation is slowing down slightly. President Biden calling the new numbers welcome news ahead of the holiday season. NPR's Deepa Deepa Shivram reports Biden says the U.S. is doing better than other major economies around the world.
9: Biden claimed lower gas prices and slowing food inflation as examples of the success of his economic plan. But he said that there's still work to do to lower prices overall.
17: Make no mistake, prices are still too high. We have a lot more work to do, but things are getting better headed in the right direction.
9: New data out today shows that inflation slowed slightly in November. Prices rose 7.1% from a year ago compared to 7.7% in October. Biden said he hopes that by the end of the year, inflation would be back to normal, but he added that he can't predict that yet. He is convinced, though, that inflation will continue to ease.
1: You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Massachusetts LGBTQ advocates and allies are celebrating President Joe Biden's signature today, of a bill that protects marriage equality in federal law. The Respect for Marriage Act passed through Congress with bipartisan support. Jansen Wu, executive director of the Boston-based advocacy group GLAD, called WBUR from the White House lawn today. Crowds were there celebrating ahead of the ceremonial signing. He says this wouldn't be possible without the hard work of LGBTQ families showing America that love is love.
6: If you had asked me a few months ago uh, the level of Republican support, you know, I would not have guessed that it was where it is. And it just reflects the broad support for
24: marriage equality across the nation.
1: Massachusetts was the first state to legalize same-sex marriage back in 2004. An acting attorney general is expected to be named when Mara Healy is sworn in as governor of Massachusetts on January 5th. A Healy aide tells the State House News Service that the acting AG will be current state solicitor Bessie Dewar. She will hold the post until Andrea Campbell is sworn in as the new Attorney general on January eighteenth. A plane took off from Marshfield this morning carrying a most unusual cargo.
25: Not many people realize you know we currently have hundred critically endangered sea turtles just flying over America currently.
1: That's Adam Kennedy. He's the director of the Sea Turtle Hospital at New England Aquarium. He says every summer, Kemp's Ridley Sea Turtles swim to Cape Cod Bay to enjoy the, temper- the temperate waters there. But when they try to swim south of the winter, they get stuck in the crook of the Cape and start to freeze. They wind up at the hospital. Eventually, they're shipped to facilities on the Gulf Coast to rehab in a warmer climate. The plane carrying today's batch is part of a nonprofit aviation network that's worked on animal rescues for e- for years. It's called Turtles Fly 2. It's 4:35.
7: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Downtown Crossing Boston, your holiday destination featuring the Snowflake Crossing Ice Festival, December 16th and 17th, downtownboston.org, and Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org.
1: In sports, the Bruins host the Islanders tonight. Celtics are out in L.A. to play the Lakers. In the forecast, mostly clear tonight. The lows around 24 degrees. Sunny tomorrow. The highs will be around 37, mostly cloudy, 43 on Thursday.
16: Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com.
8: This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro.
9: And I'm Juana Summers. Inflation eased a bit last month, used cars got cheaper, and so did the gasoline used to power them. Annual inflation overall in November was the lowest it's been in 11 months. President Biden told reporters at the White House today that while the cost of living is still too high, it's moving in the right direction.
17: Prices of things like televisions and toys are going down. It's good news for the holiday season. Used car prices fell for the fifth month in a row. New car prices didn't go up this month. That savings is critical to so many families.
9: Today's inflation report comes as the Federal Reserve is weighing another hike in interest rates. And NPR's Scott Horsley joins us now. Hey there. Hi, Wanda. So, Scott, this report was a bit better than forecasters had expected. So tell us, what is moving the needle on inflation?
24: Well, you mentioned gasoline prices. They've been falling sharply. Uh, the average price of the pump dropped about 25 cents a gallon over the course of November, and it's continued to fall since then. Uh, we also saw a drop in a lot of travel-related prices, things like airfares, hotel rooms, rental cars. Economist Julia Coronado, who's with Macro Policy Perspective, says that's a sign that the era of revenge travel, when people would pay any price just to get out after the pandemic lockdowns, is coming to an end.
7: It's not like I'm going to take a vacation no matter what. It's, you know, if I don't get the deal I want, I'll postpone or take a different trip or drive instead of fly. These marginal decisions that consumers used to make and normally make when they're budget conscious, they're starting to make again.
24: And when shoppers start to make those choices, businesses can no longer raise prices at will. And that's when you start to see inflation come down.
9: But Scott, overall inflation is still high, right?
24: it is yeah overall prices in november were up 7.1 percent from a year ago now that's a lower annual rate than we've seen since the end of last year but it's a lot higher than we were used to back before the pandemic grocery prices are up rents are still climbing Overall, the price of goods has been moderating, and it looks like the worst of rental inflation is probably behind us. But the big concern now is the price of services. Things like haircuts and dry cleaning saw pretty big price increases last month, and that's largely driven by wages. And with the job market still tight, those prices could take a while to level off or even come down.
9: Inflation watchdogs at the Federal Reserve are meeting this week. So I'm curious, do you have any sense of what they might do, given the news in this report?
24: They're probably going to stay the course and raise interest rates tomorrow. That would be the seventh increase in nine months. Uh, it is expected to be a smaller rate hike this time than the last four, just half a percentage point instead of three quarters of a point. But the central bank has made it pretty clear that borrowing costs are going to keep rising and stay up for a a while until prices are back under control. Coronado says at 7.1%, inflation is still way above the Fed's target, even if today's report was somewhat better than expected.
7: All of the signs look very promising. I don't think the Fed is done. I don't think this means that they're gonna declare victory. The annual rate of inflation is still very high and they're gonna wanna see a bigger accumulation of evidence, but it's unambiguously good news.
24: You know, the stock market took off this morning, shortly after the inflation report came out. Uh, the Dow Jones Industrial Average jumped about 500 points in the early minutes of trading. By the end of the day, though, stocks had settled back to a more modest gain. The Dow closed just up uh, about 100 points. Investors are taking this report as good news, but there's a long way to go before the fight with inflation is over.
9: NPR's Scott Horsley, thank you as always. You're welcome. New
8: doctors are not choosing to go into the specialty of infectious diseases. This year, programs saw an alarming decline in doctors entering the field across the U.S. NPR's Ping Huang looks into why.
21: Infectious diseases like COVID have been front and center for the past few years. In 2020, as the pandemic flooded hospitals and shook society to its core, Dr. Bahuma Tatanji at Emory University saw a spike of interest in the fields.
3: We actually saw um, a little bit of what we called the Fauci effect. And a lot of us saw that as kind of uh, a reinvigoration of interest.
21: Now, the Fauci bump looks like a blip. This year, 44 percent of infectious disease training programs went unfilled, while most other specialties like cardiology and critical care were almost completely full. Dr. Carlos Del Rio, head of the Infectious Diseases Society of America, says this is not what he wanted to see.
0: I'm, I'm bummed out, right? I mean, I... I love my field. I love what I do. And, and it's a uh, very concern, I would say.
21: Top programs were scrambling to fill open positions. At Boston Medical Center, Dr. Daniel Bork said all their spots were empty after this year's match.
26: This is my first year as the program director, and I'm trying to tell myself it's not something that I've done. And I don't believe that's the case. I think I think it's obviously like goes beyond our program I mean, there's many other programs that also didn't fill at all.
21: Infectious disease doctors say their work has been so public and so important through the COVID pandemic and flu and Mpox. They stop outbreaks in hospitals and guard against the rise of drug-resistant bacteria. They have high job satisfaction and their work is never boring. So why don't you doctors want to join their fields? The most obvious reason, says Dr. Tatanji from Emory, is the pay. The average salary is $260,000 a year, which is more than most U.S. workers make, but far less than doctors and other specialties. Well, we're talking about a six-figure pay difference. And for some people, coming out of medical training with a whole lot of debt, there are important economic considerations that folks have to make for themselves and their families. It can even pay worse than some doctor jobs that require less training. Dr. Paul Pottinger at the University of Washington says that's because of how the medical payment system works.
22: The way people get paid for their medical practice in the United States, it is a fee-for-service system that we have. It has really been about procedures.
21: Pottinger says that's not what infectious disease doctors do.
22: What we do is we examine patients and we talk to them and we talk to our colleagues. We think for a living. And because we don't have a surgery to do, I think that's where this legacy of reduced pay has come from.
21: The other problem is that infectious disease doctors have worked very, very long hours during the pandemic. Dr. Jasmine Marcellin at the University of Nebraska says the current crop of doctors who trained during the pandemic might have gotten a skewed view. You know, in non-pandemic times, We certainly work really hard, but we still get to go home. We still get to spend time with our families. You know, we still get to do things that we enjoy. Still, she says, the field has long been understaffed. Even before the pandemic, 80 percent of U.S. counties did not have a single infectious disease physician. It's a bad cycle, says Del Rio from the Infectious Diseases Society. The field needs more people to share the burden of the work. But the heavy workload is turning people away.
26: It's long hours and low pay. Long hours and low pay are a dreadful combination, if you ask me.
21: He and others in the field are asking Congress for loan forgiveness and for infectious disease doctors to be paid more. He says more specialists are needed to help keep outbreaks and future pandemics at bay. Ping Huang, NPR News.
9: Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. A bipartisan Senate investigation has found widespread abuse of women in prison by some of the male wardens, officers, and volunteers tasked to protect them. The investigation uncovered evidence of sexual abuse in at least two-thirds of the federal facilities that housed women over the past decade. NPR Justice correspondent Carrie Johnson reports. And just a warning, this story discusses sexual violence.
19: Breanne Moore says a captain at the federal prison in Alderson, West Virginia, began targeting her in 2017. Moore had been seeking a transfer to be closer to her daughter.
14: He took me to areas that were isolated in the prison where there were no cameras. He told me that he knew I wanted to transfer to another prison. He said the paperwork goes through me.
19: Moore says she felt powerless.
14: He was a captain with total control over me. I had no choice but to obey. I always had to follow orders in prison. It is hard to fully describe how this felt.
19: After word finally came that she could move to a different prison, Moore says, the captain raped her one last time.
14: After the abuse, I could not sleep for full nights for months. I had recurring nightmares that played over and over like a broken record. I woke up in cold sweats.
19: Eventually, Moore's abuser was convicted for assaulting her and others. But that experience is unusual for the Federal Bureau of Prisons. Senator John Ossoff, a Democrat from Georgia, led the eight-month investigation.
6: Our findings are deeply disturbing and demonstrate, in my view, that the BOP is failing systemically to prevent, detect, and address sexual abuse of prisoners by its own employees.
19: Ossoff says at one California prison, both the warden and the chaplain assaulted incarcerated women. The person in charge of compliance with a law to prevent prison rape there was also abusing women.
6: In fact, several officers who admitted under oath to sexually abusing prisoners were able nevertheless to retire with
19: benefits. His investigation found a backlog of hundreds of sexual abuse allegations in the internal affairs unit for federal prisons. Linda De La Rosa says it took three years to arrest, convict and sentence the prison worker who raped her, even though he had been investigated for predatory behavior several times before.
16: I believe the problem is the old boys club. Prison staff, managers, investigators, correctional officers. They all work together for years if not decades. No one wants to rock the boat,
5: let alone listen to female inmates.
19: Brenda Smith, a law professor at American University, urged the Justice Department to hire more women to work in women's prisons and to beef up audits of prison conditions with independent verification like looking at complaints and lawsuits.
2: We have the people who are supposed to be being audited auditing
27: themselves essentially. And so what happens, there's not a great deal of diversity.
19: Colette Peters is the new chief of the federal prison system, on the job for the past five months. Peters says she's looking at how wardens and facilities for women are selected and supervised. She's also pledged to update camera systems in prison.
16: Any kind of misconduct, especially sexual misconduct by bureau employees, is always unacceptable and must not be tolerated.
19: Peter says prison workers have an obligation to come forward to identify predators in their own ranks. Carrie Johnson, NPR News.
8: You're listening to All Things Considered from
1: NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown, 38 degrees in Boston at 448. Coming up next on All Things Considered, we'll hear from musician Tobias Jesso, Jr., who's nominated for the first-ever Grammy Award for Songwriter of the Year Non-Classical. That's ahead here on WBUR. WBUR supporters include Life of
22: Pi at the ART, See the spectacular adaptation of the beloved novel, Before It Goes
1: to Broadway, now through January 29th, amrep.org. Join on point host Meghna Chakrabarty tomorrow, December 14th, for a city space conversation on anti aging research with Harvard genetics professor David Sinclair. You can find tickets at wbur.org slash events. In the forecast, mostly clear tonight. The lows around 24 degrees. It'll be sunny tomorrow. The highs will be around 37. Right now, it's 38 degrees in Boston.
15: WBUR supporters include Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC.
13: A mother in Connecticut has a particular experience every time she hears sirens.
5: Sirens still get me. That's what it sounded like the day of the murders, just non
13: When she hears sirens like that, she sends out a prayer to her daughter, Aviel. She was one of 20 first graders and six adults who were killed at the Sandy Hook Elementary School. Ten years later, tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR
22: News.
18: That's Morning Edition, 5 to 9, on 90.9 WBUR,
22: Boston's NPR news station.
9: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers.
8: And I'm Ari Shapiro. Okay, music fans, what do these songs have in common? Orville Peck's Come On Baby Cry. I
6: don't want you to
8: be afraid. Adele's To Be Loved. To- And, from Harry Styles... These are just a few of the songs that earned Tobias Jesso Jr. a Grammy nomination in the brand new category Songwriter of the Year. Besides those superstars, he has also worked with Diplo, King Princess, FKA
11: Twigs, and many more. It's unbelievable to me that here I am, you know, working with these artists. I feel like I'm in the documentaries I used to watch, and it's just, like, surreal. I can't believe it.
8: Gesso, who's 37, got his start in the industry by recording his own songs for a solo album. So while lots of artists can name the reason they were inspired to perform, I asked why he instead felt more driven to pick up the pen to serve
11: others. I think that's just probably where I'm more comfortable, but I actually didn't really, like, get very good at, playing any instrument, which was sort of my uh, mistake for a long time. You know, I didn't pick up piano till I was 27. And so I think that, you know, a lot of people kind of feel like they want to be in front of an audience and sort of have fans. And, and for me, it was sort of more of a love of being with the people who want that. I think mm. it's sort of like falling in love with the process of it.
8: Is there a typical how things work? Is there a sort of, I don't know, formula that you tend to follow? Whether you're working with Adele or Harry
11: Styles or FKA Twigs? Well, I think, I think as a songwriter, it's sort of your job to be like obsessed with the artist's process and be able to kind of go with whatever they want to do. You know, like obviously, I had the best experience in the world because the first sort of major artist I ever worked with was Adele and she kind of gave me the master class of you know what her process was and I sort of used that as a blueprint and um in all the work I did afterwards but
8: and was that first song when we were young that was
11: yeah that was the first co-write I ever had
8: So this was years ago, but just to get a sense of how something like this works, do you walk in with a melody? Does she say, I want to write a song about youth?
11: Like, what? what's, how does that evolve? Well, you know, it's really funny because I had no idea how it worked because I'd never done it before. So <laughs> she came in and at the time, you know, uh, she was smoking and I was like, great, I smoke too. And we went outside and we just kind of ended up talking for a long time and until eventually she kind of, you know, looked at her watch and was like, should we go and write a song now? And I was like, sure, like, you know, and so that really works for me. Hmm. Getting to know the artist before we launch into melodies, I kind of want to get a sense of who is this person and maybe what do they want to say? And my biggest sort of buzz off being a songwriter is just being of service to whoever I'm with, you know, and feeling like I left that day going, I really like, feel like we got somewhere even if it wasn't a song I feel like part of being a
8: songwriter is being a chameleon right so how do you operate differently when you're working with somebody who might have a totally different style from
11: someone like Adele yeah I mean like a very polar sort of experience to that would be more like twigs sure you, away you get in the studio with twigs and it's just like I mean the most abstract creativity you can imagine you know and she's just like rattling off ideas or playing songs or these melodies are coming motion, you know her process is very much like she takes time to put things together and and sort of collage her ideas into, you know, the beautiful songs that she does make.
8: Let's talk about the chapter of your life when you did step out from behind the curtain. You released oh, your yeah. own solo album. You say, oh my God. Yeah, what, yeah. is this like the trauma that we're unearthing? Could you baby? This was a 2015 album called Goon
11: that was really well received. What's the oh my God? The anxiety, like, I, you know, I can't even tell you, like, my chest is burning i'm like my everything about like putting yourself out there for me is just so anxiety inducing it's like even though it was a success by any measure oh my god especially because it was a success i mean i think i wouldn't say i got pushed into it i willingly went into it and did everything i did and i'm so grateful i did because it like created the body of work that sort of um launched my career i just think like When I think about it, it just feels like that was me on the wrong path. Hmm. And then as soon as Adele came along in the beginning, I was like, oh, great. Now this is now this feels like the right path.
8: Despite the heart palpitations that it might cause, is there one song from that album that you just really love that you're happy the world can go back and hear? I mean, I
11: think Without You was sort of the song I thought is the most real. And then... It wasn't one of the singles. And then over time, I've seen that Without You has kind of become the the favorite. And so I was really in that zone when when I wrote that song. It's nice that the song that you
8: really did care about the most ultimately found its way kind of to the surface.
11: And I think you find that that's true for most artists, Uh, you know, like whatever feels the most authentic to them is gonna register the most authentic to other people. Uh, It doesn't necessarily mean it's gonna be the biggest hit, but I tend to search for the songs that mean the most to the artist so that their fans have those songs that mean the most to them.
8: That idea of being there to serve the artist seems so essential to the way that you see your role. And I was trying to figure out sort of what the secret sauce is, what makes you what Adele calls her secret weapon. And I I wonder if that's it.
11: Yeah, I think the way I've kind of described it is sort of like a porter who is like helping somebody up a mountain. Sometimes you'll have somebody who is like, can you carry all my bags and, you know, drag me up the way that you always go? Or there's people who are like, I want to do this myself, you know, like, I'm paving the way, just make sure we don't get lost, you know? Uh And once you get to the top, if you're really true to being a songwriter, who, who is there for the artist and, and not for yourself, it's truly like now it's time for me to disappear. This is your, this is your time. I truly celebrate most when the artist is uh, happy.
8: Tobias Gesso, Jr., nominated for a Grammy in the new songwriting category. Thank you so much for talking with us.
11: Oh, thanks for talking to me.
15: I think I'm to the bed. Pray I'm
9: You're listening
16: to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Searchlight Pictures presenting Empire of Light, a new film directed by Sam Mendes, starring Olivia Colman, Michael Ward, and Colin Firth, about human connection and the magic of cinema, now playing in select theaters. And from Fidelity, with Fidelity Income Planning, Fidelity looks at how much clients saved, how much they'll need, and helps them build a plan for cash flow so they can go from saving to living. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from Bed Bath & Beyond with cleaning products too. Featuring a curated selection of brands, including Shark, Ninja, and Casper. More at bedbathandbeyond.com.
1: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Steve Brown and as All Things Considered continues at five o'clock, thousands of migrants have arrived in El Paso since Friday. These arrivals could be a sign of what is around the corner. That's up next on WBUR.
7: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, understanding that now more than ever, we need the ocean and the ocean needs us. Start the new year by joining a team dedicated to advancing ocean science and technology for the global good. Explore exciting career opportunities in many fields at whoi.edu slash team. I'm reporter Debra Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
27: What we do is important. Growing food is very important. It's something to be proud of.
1: Many farmers near Fresno, California are struggling to get the water they need for their crops. It's Tuesday, December 13th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, more on the farmers' efforts to figure out new ways of accessing water. Also ahead, thousands of migrants have arrived in El Paso since Friday. The pandemic border restrictions, known as Title 42, are due to end soon. These arrivals could be a sign of what is around the corner. And the Greenland ice sheet continues to melt with two extreme melt-offs. Seabirds are dying off at an alarming rate. More ships are passing through the Arctic as the climate warms. A new NOAA report confirms it. It's 5.01. News headlines are next.
0: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. With unusual speed, the U.S. government today announced it has charged the former CEO of cryptocurrency exchange FTX with a host of financial crimes. Federal prosecutors alleging, among other things, that Sam Bankman Fried intentionally deceived customers and investors in order to enrich himself and others. It's one of a very aggressive,
13: very fierce government response. Remember, it was just a month ago Bankman Fried stepped down and FTX filed for bankruptcy. Prosecutors seem pretty outraged by the number of people who may be victims of fraud here and by the amount of money that seems to have just disappeared. So far,
0: FTX says it can't find $8 billion. NPR's David Gura, bankman freed arrested last night in the Bahamas, faces eight counts of fraud and conspiracy and separate civil securities fraud charges. President Biden called guests to the White House today to celebrate the signing of a measure guaranteeing marriage equality. The bill aimed at enshrining protections for same-sex unions and interracial ones. Legislation passed by bipartisan majorities in Congress last week. Lawmakers in part were motivated by the possibility conservative justices on the U.S. Supreme Court, which overturned the nationwide right to abortion, might make a similar move in terms of gay marriage. The White House is urging Congress to keep working toward a bipartisan compromise on government funding. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports lawmakers are up against a deadline on Friday to reach a deal on a $1.5 trillion budget.
7: White House Press Secretary
5: Karine Jean-Pierre is urging both sides to keep negotiating. There's enough time to get this done. This is not a par- partisan issue. We're talking about bipartisan issues here when, it, when we talk about the American people, national security, right? We're talking about public health, public education, all key issues that matter for all Americans across the country. Democrats and
7: Republicans appear to agree on roughly $850 billion in defense funding, but continue to clash over non-defense spending. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says lawmakers should be prepared to vote on a one-week continuing resolution by the end of the week in order to give negotiators more time to reach a final agreement.
28: Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington.
0: A breakthrough in nuclear fusion, NPR's Jeff Brumfell reports.
10: Researchers at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California used lasers to generate a burst of fusion power. The power out was greater than the laser energy going in, meaning that the process generated net energy.
2: It's the first time it has ever been done in a laboratory anywhere
10: in the world. Secretary of Energy Jennifer Granholm made the announcement. Fusion produces an enormous amount of power by fusing together lightweight atoms. Independent scientists say the breakthrough is important, but the technology still needs time to produce clean, safe electricity. Without further breakthroughs, commercial fusion power is likely still decades away. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News.
0: This is NPR.
1: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Boston has revealed new plans for the largest park in the city. The Franklin Park Action Plan outlines a vision to renovate the space. WBUR's Paula Moda reports that the city has earmarked more than $23 million for the improvements.
29: The city's plan draws on feedback from more than 6,000 people. Its recommendations include improving entrance access, adding more lighting and signage, and rebuilding historical areas. Ryan Woods is Boston's Commissioner of Parks and Recreation. He says they want to create an inviting space that honors the vision of the park's architect, Frederick Law Olmsted.
18: The importance of access to that open space, having public health benefits, and the opportunities for nurturing community relationships.
29: The plan is open to community comment for 60 days. Construction work would likely start in 2024. For 90.9, WBUR. I'm Paula Moda.
1: The number of food app deliveries in Massachusetts from services like DoorDash now likely outpace the number of rideshare trips on apps like Lyft. That's according to a new report from the Metropolitan Area Planning Council. Travis Pollack helped author the study. He says food deliveries make Boston's traffic worse because food couriers spend more time curbside than rideshare drivers. That can be as long as 10 minutes, according to one study, for food pickup and two minutes for drop-off because the drivers, if they go by
11: car to deliver the food, have to um, exit the vehicle for both pickup and drop-off, and this
1: takes longer. Pollock says the state should consider making food delivery apps pay a per-trip tax as rideshare companies already do. State highway officials are temporarily closing the Route 24 southbound ramp to Interstate 495 in Bridgewater because of a crash. They estimate the shutdown will last until about 7 p.m. tonight. Drivers can expect slowdowns in the area and are advised to avoid that part of Route 24 altogether. In sports, the Bruins will host the Islanders tonight over at the Garden. The Celtics take on the Lakers out in L.A. In the forecast, it will be mostly clear tonight. The lows around 24 degrees, sunny tomorrow. The highs around 37, mostly cloudy, 43 degrees on Thursday. Rain is likely on Friday. The high will be around 47. Right now, it's 38 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR.
15: WBUR supporters include DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com.
8: This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And
9: I'm Juana Summers. Federal authorities in El Paso are busy processing thousands of migrants who've crossed the border from Mexico in recent days. Shelters in the city are overflowing, and some people are being released onto the street. It could be a preview of what's to come border-wide when pandemic restrictions are set to end next week. We're joined now by Angela Cocherga from member station KTEP in El Paso and Joel Rose, NPR's immigration correspondent in D.C. Welcome to you both.
4: Hi
9: there. Hi, Juana. Angela, I want to start with you. More than 2,000 people a day have been crossing the border to El Paso recently, so tell us what's going on there.
5: Well, they're still coming. Migrants are waiting across the Rio Grande, lining up to turn themselves into Border Patrol agents, and most are seeking asylum. I talked to Michelle Hurtado, who crossed with her two year old son.
15: (laughs) Si, si, bueno, si Dios y la vida me y acá Estados Unidos me brinda, si, si lo voy a pedir. En nombre de Dios.
5: And she's saying if God and fate and the United States allow, she'll ask for asylum in the name of God. And Angela, is what we're seeing
9: now connected to the changes in policy that we mentioned that are coming next week?
5: Yes. Hurtado, like so many others, said she decided to cross into the U.S. now, before another policy change. She had been waiting in Mexico on the border for the last two months. Now, the background ground is what you mentioned earlier. The pandemic border restriction is set to expire next week because of a judge's order. And Title 42, a health rule that has functioned as a de facto border enforcement tool, will come to an end. It's been used more than 2 million times to quickly expel migrants without giving them a chance to seek asylum.
9: And Joel, help us understand what is the latest on the legal fight over Title 42?
4: Right. Well, like Angela said, these restrictions were first put in place by the Trump administration. And last month, a judge in Washington, D.C. found the Title 42 policy unlawful and ordered the Biden administration to stop using it. His ruling is set to take effect one week from tonight at midnight, but there is a legal challenge that is still pending from Republican attorneys general in 19 states, including Arizona and Louisiana. And there are many of the same states that were able to block the end of Title 42 before back in the spring when the Biden administration tried to end these restrictions back then. Now these states are trying to intervene in this current case in DC. Last night, they filed an emergency motion with the DC Circuit Court of Appeals asking the court to stay the lower court ruling while their legal challenge plays out and they've asked that appeals court to make a decision on their request by friday and if the states don't succeed there they will likely turn to the supreme court next
9: and angela homeland security secretary secretary mayorkas was in el paso today and i understand that you sat down with him what has he had to say about the situation
5: well yeah mayorkas was here in el paso to see preparations for the likely end of title 42 He toured border patrol facilities, met with the city and county leaders and nonprofit organizations managing temporary shelters. I asked him what he'd tell people who see the images of large groups of people waiting across the Rio Grande now, and he said that they're exercising their legal right to ask for asylum and surrendering to border patrol in an orderly way. But he also said this.
0: Quite frankly, it's an extraordinarily powerful picture of why we need our immigration system reformed through legislation. Our asylum system is broken. Our immigration system as a whole is broken. It hasn't been updated or reformed in more than 40 years.
5: And has talked about efforts to change the asylum process so people don't all end up on the border.
9: Joel, if you can, talk to us about the larger policy around asylum. What is the Biden administration's position going forward?
4: The administration is really trying to find a balance here, I think, between allowing migrants to seek asylum protection, especially the most vulnerable, while also discouraging migrants who don't have good asylum claims from crossing illegally. And like previous administrations, I think they're finding this is a very difficult balance to strike. The administration is reportedly considering some big changes that would sharply limit who can seek asylum at the border, possibly modeled on a recently announced process for Venezuelans. Uh, The Biden administration created a new legal pathway for some migrants from Venezuela, but only if they have sponsors in the U.S., and crucially, only if they apply from outside of the U.S. and do not cross the border illegally. The administration, I think, sees that program as a success, so we could see that process expanded to other nationalities now as well.
9: Before I let you go, I've got a question for both of you. Um, What are you watching for in the next week when it comes to the border and the possible end of the Title 42 policy?
4: I mean, I'm looking at how many migrants will cross and also where they will cross. You know, this is not just El Paso we're talking about. There are tens of thousands of migrants on asylum waiting lists at at ports of entry from the Gulf of Mexico all the way to Tijuana and and the Pacific Ocean. Many of those migrants are staying in small camps or shelters or even basements. So it's, it's tough to predict where they will cross in the greatest numbers and also tough to know whether immigration authorities and border communities will be prepared.
5: And, Angela, what about you? Yeah, here in El Paso, yeah, we are really already dealing with a very dire situation. Shelters are full. Border Patrol is sending people to other cities to be processed because they can't keep up. Nonprofits and the city and county of El Paso are working together to help migrants, but they can't do much more, they say, without financial help from the federal government. We've been speaking with
9: KTEP's Angela Cocherga in El Paso, as well as Joel Rose, NPR's immigration correspondent in Washington, D.C. Thanks to both of you.
4: You're welcome.
5: Thank you.
8: A local election in rural California caught our attention last month. Farmers ousted the longtime leaders of the organization that supplies their irrigation water, which may sound small, but as Dan Charles reports, it's a sign of something bigger, farmers reacting to a hotter climate. Westlands Water
6: District, west of Fresno, is the biggest agricultural water district in the country. It's part of a wide, fertile valley that supplies the country with a lot of its fresh produce, fruit, and nuts. It's politically well-connected. And Tim Quinn, who used to run the Association of California Water Agencies, says Westlands has a reputation for fighting. We're pretty entrenched in adversarial decision-making. It was us versus them. And we were going to win, and they were going to lose. The battles started in 1992, when Congress passed a law that says the massive network of canals and pumping stations that delivers water from California's rivers to its farms has to preserve endangered fish in rivers and estuaries, too. So when droughts hit, farmers got less water from that system, sometimes none at all. And Westlands fought back. It sued the government, pushed for new laws. Here's Westlands general manager Tom Birmingham at a hearing on Capitol Hill in 2016. Where's the outrage that it's governmental policies that have created zero water supplies for communities in the San Joaquin Valley? But recently, some farmers in Westlands have been questioning this approach. Like Sarah Wolfe. She served on the Westlands board for six years and tried to get the district to fight less, compromise more. Eventually,
27: she resigned. What we do is important. Growing food is very important. It's something to be proud of and I want to be proud of what we're doing but if we're just fighting with people I don't I'm not very proud of that
6: other farmers say Westland should do more to adapt to the fact that water is scarce in a warmer climate droughts have been hitting more often lasting longer in four of the past nine years Westland's got no water from those dams and canals farmers stayed in business by pumping more water from their wells but now a new law is restricting groundwater pumping too. vegetable grower Justin Diener says the situation's getting desperate I think this
10: the farming community is really struggling at this point. There are a lot of people
6: kind of looking at the walls wondering what they're going to do. This year, frustrated farmers in Westlands formed a coalition pushing for change. And last month, four of them, including Diener, won seats on the Westlands board. They appear to have a majority because some allies were elected previously. After those results came out, Tom Birmingham, the district's longtime general manager, announced that he'll retire. The change candidates came in with a to-do list. One big item, store more water underground when it does rain. Sarah Wolf says, let me show you something.
27: How far away is it? Just down the road. It's not very far at
6: all. She drives me out to a field. I'm just going to
12: kind of
27: show it from right here because I think it's
6: an easier vantage point. There's a dry creek bed in the distance. When it rains, that creek fills up. Sometimes it floods. It pushes out into the
27: floodplain back where you can see more brush.
6: In the past, the water just sat there in a silted up pond until it evaporated. But now, Wolf says, some farms set up a system to pump it into this wide terraced field. There it can soak into the ground all the way down to the aquifer, an underground reservoir that farmers can tap when they really need it. The incoming board members want to build a lot more projects like this. They also want to develop plans to convert some of the district's land to other uses, like solar farms or wildlife habitat. Because with less water from the rivers and depleted aquifers underground, Wolf says they can only expect to grow crops on about half as much land as they once did.
27: It's not going to just be agriculture in the future.
6: And the newly elected board members say they want to cooperate with other groups that have their own claims on California's water, like environmentalists, also advocates for safe drinking water. Tim Quinn, the former water manager, says this is a big new trend in California's water politics, collaboration.
1: What you're saying here is not unique to Westlands. It's happening everywhere.
6: In California today, he says, adversaries have to work together to get anything done. For NPR News, I'm Dan Charles.
8: And this story was a collaboration with the Food and Environment Reporting Network.
9: listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
1: This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 37 degrees in Boston at 519. Ahead on All Things Considered, United Airlines has inked a big deal with Boeing. The air carrier will purchase 200 airplanes for $43 billion. That's ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School proud to
22: be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu
1: slash globe. Wall Street stocks closed the day higher. The Dow was up three-tenths of a percent at 34,109. The S&P 500 was up three-quarters of a percent to close at 4020. And the Nasdaq was up about one percent and the day at 11,257. In business news, Cambridge-based Nimbus Therapeutics is selling an experimental autoimmune drug, To the Japanese biotech giant Takeda Pharmaceuticals, Takeda is paying $4 billion up front and potentially billions more in performance-based incentives. The drug is being tested for effectiveness against psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. Takeda believes the drug may also have the potential to treat inflammatory bowel disease. This is WBUR.
15: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters return to delight all ages this holiday season on stage through December 31st. Tickets at bostonballet.org.
29: Now is the time
15: to
3: make your tax-deductible contribution to WBUR for 2022. Give at wbur.org.
1: New on WBUR's Last Seen podcast, a three-part series about an unsolved homicide in Boston's Haitian community and a family's search for truth. Listen to and follow Last Scene wherever you get your podcasts.
16: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru, whose Share the Love event runs through January 3rd. By year's end, Subaru and their retailers will have donated over $250 million to charity. Learn more at Subaru.com share. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com.
8: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro.
9: And I'm Juana Summers. It was one of the sectors hit the earliest and the hardest when the pandemic began, but today, we may have a new sign of how the airline industry is rebounding. United Airlines just announced a plan to buy 100 new Boeing 787 Dreamliners. It is a massive deal for these companies. And now let's talk about what it could mean for passengers, the environment, and the economy with United Airlines CEO Scott Kirby. Hi there. Thanks for speaking with us.
25: Thanks for having me.
9: So, Scott, I'd like to start, if I could, with where the industry is right now. We've seen travel pick up this past year, but by at least one measure, airlines have lost a staggering $220 billion since the start of the pandemic. So, tell us how this plan to buy these new planes fits into that recovery picture.
25: Sure. You know, we have seen a a robust recovery. We did lose a lot during the pandemic, and we're really only eight months into the recovery. It really didn't start uh, until the second quarter of this year. But Our demand has come roaring back, and it's now stronger than it was even before the pandemic. And we have confidence that demand is going to be strong for a long time, uh, especially international demand. There are a lot of constraints on supply and growth and pilot shortages. And the fact that both Boeing and Airbus are having supply chain challenges and have trouble producing airplanes and air traffic control saturation means that... Supply is challenged. At the same time, demand is strong. And so for airlines that have the ability to grow like United, it creates a really unique, I think, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity.
9: So I want to get back to the details of that pilot shortage in just a moment, but I want to ask you a few questions about the specifics of this order. You have called this the biggest order ever of wide-body planes, and those are the kinds that have two aisles. How will this order change the flying experience for United's customers?
25: The airplanes will be, you know, the most modern, uh, not just fuel efficient, but also from a customer perspective. So fast Wi-Fi, larger overhead bins, most latest entertainment system. But it also means growth to places around the world that in many cases, you know, Americans can't get to on a nonstop basis today. And we started this during the pandemic, and I think it just means more flight options on a much better high-quality product for customers.
9: And just to clarify here, when will those planes be in service?
25: The first airplanes from this order began in 2024 and then pick up in earnest in 2025.
9: You mentioned the fact that these planes are meant to be more fuel-efficient, be able to fly longer distances on less fuel. So from an environmental standpoint, how does this order work towards the UN's goal of net-zero industry emissions by the year 2050?
25: Well, these aircraft are up to 25% more fuel efficient than the airplanes that they'll replace, but that on its own is not enough uh, to get you to zero. And for what it's worth, the sustainability provisions in the Inflation Reduction Act, I think are good. we're going to look back and be able to say that was some of the most consequential legislation passed in the last couple of decades
9: United's pilots are without a contract right now, as are flight attendants, mechanics, other union workers. That last contract expired four years ago. And I know that some pilots picketed outside of your board of directors meeting last week in Houston. They say they've sacrificed throughout the pandemic. And I have to imagine that some of them might be wondering, if United can afford these new planes, why can't they afford to offer workers a better deal?
25: Well, I, I think we're going to be close on, on pilots on getting a deal. United was the only airline during the pandemic to negotiate a deal with our pilots successfully. Uh, that allowed us to keep them all in position and really set the stage for this What's happening at United today, including this aircraft order? Uh, we were also the first to get a deal with pilots uh, earlier this year, and, and while it failed in the ratification vote, uh, you know there's another deal that's probably going to be done. I think that sets the stage. It's a rich deal, um, but one that uh, we'll be happy uh, to offer to our pilots, and uh, you know I think we're I think we're pretty close.
9: You know, despite a pretty chaotic year for air travel, United did well over the Thanksgiving travel period. Any prediction on what travelers can expect for the rest of the holiday season, especially if there's bad weather out there?
25: To give credit where it's due, the whole industry uh, has been doing well for the last several months, and you know we've gotten great support from the FAA who's been in there on a day-to-day basis with us, making sure the air traffic control system is appropriately staffed, and really all airlines across the board have pulled their flying schedule down and really just built more buffer into the system. And. We've been seeing, even when there is weather, the impacts are smaller now than they were before, and even smaller than they were pre-pandemic, because we built more buffer. Now, that costs some money. Uh, We're going to keep that in place, and we have high confidence for the holidays. Now, there may be weather that impacts certain places, but because of that extra buffer, it's unlikely to spill over into a cascading set of delays around the system.
5: Scott
9: Kirby is the CEO of United Airlines. Thank you so much for joining us.
8: Thank you. The Arctic is the sentinel for global climate change. The region is warming faster than the rest of the planet. And the news from this year's Arctic Report Card from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration paints a picture of profound change. Barbara Moran of member station WBUR has the key takeaways.
9: The
27: last seven years in the Arctic have been the hottest since 1900. That's led to more storms, less sea ice and melting permafrost. Those changes hit home for NOAA Administrator Rick Spinrad while visiting Alaska last summer.
23: My biggest takeaway from that trip is that the wolf is in the house.
27: Meaning global warming is already bringing major change to Alaska and the entire Arctic.
23: Warming waters that are forcing fish to migrate and are having ripple effects for the entire Alaskan seafood industry. Fire seasons that last far longer than they ever have. That's just a snapshot of what parts of the lower 48 might expect in the very near future.
27: Noah's report card shows reduced sea ice has led to more shipping. There's also more rain and even flooding. Rick Toman is a climate specialist at the University of Alaska Fairbanks and contributed to the report. He says as the climate warms, there's more brush and trees which fuel wildfires.
26: There's much more vegetation on the tundra
0: now than there was 50 years ago, there is now enough fuel, and we are getting enough lightning that things are burning in a way that they didn't used to.
27: There's some good news in the report. Arctic geese populations are stable, but seabirds like auklets and puffins are dying in higher than expected numbers for the sixth year in a row, mostly from starvation. The water has gotten too warm for the fish they need to eat.
7: When I look at the Arctic report
27: card, uh, it does seem kind of doom and gloom. Jackie Catalina Schaefer directs climate initiatives at the Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium. She's also an INUPAC and one of the report authors. But when you work with communities and you interact with
7: people and see the vibrant cultures and the traditions that are continuing
27: for thousands of years, that's my hope. Schaefer also sees hope in the growing collaborations between Western science and indigenous knowledge as they work together to address the challenges of climate change. For NPR News, I'm Barbara Moran in Chicago.
9: This is NPR News.
1: This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Ahead on All Things Considered, Argentina has done it again, made it to the finals of the World Cup. The South American powerhouse defeated Croatia 3-0 in the semifinals to advance to Sunday's final against either France or Morocco. In the forecast, mostly clear tonight. The lows will be around 24 degrees. Sunny tomorrow. The highs around 37. Mostly cloudy, 43 degrees on Thursday. Rain is likely on Friday. The highs will be around 47. The rain should give way to sunshine on Saturday. The highs will be near 42 degrees. Right now it's 37 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR.
7: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by New Art Center in Newton, with art classes for adults, teens, and kids. Enroll now to spark your creativity this winter at newartcenter.org.
16: A California entrepreneur is building affordable homes in South Central Los Angeles at half the usual cost. How? By saying no to public funding.
6: Low-income communities need development. They need new capital. But they need it to be done in a way that really benefits the entire community. And one of the underlying
26: principles we have is
11: same neighbors, better neighborhoods.
16: That's On Point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.
23: Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden has signed legislation into law today that ensures same-sex and interracial marriages are recognized across state lines. More than 2,000 activists and lawmakers gathered on the South, south Lawn of the White House today for the ceremony. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre praised the president's support.
5: He has always been an ally. Uh, I think I speak for many of us at the White House today that we could not be prouder to be working for this administration, uh, to be working for this particular president, and to be working on all the issues that are going to change uh, Americans' lives, and as we have seen, historic, historic legislation.
23: Senate Democrats introduced the legislation earlier this year after the Supreme Court Justice uh, Clarence Thomas floated the idea of overturning the decision protecting same-sex marriage. Russia is rejecting a proposal by Ukraine's president for Moscow to pull its troops from Ukrainian territory by Christmas to begin a possible peace process. As NPR's Charles Maines tells us, the Kremlin insists Ukraine must first accept Russia's expanded borders.
0: Kremlin spokesman Dmitry
1: Peskov said before any progress in talks could be made, Kiev had to recognize what he called the reality of Moscow's annexation of four Ukrainian regions into the Russian Federation last September. The annexation move was denounced by the international community as an illegal land grab, and the Kremlin's forces have never managed to establish full control over the territory it now claims. Government critics say questions over Russia's continued lack of
4: military progress was behind a Kremlin decision to cancel a traditional year-end press conference by President Vladimir Putin. The cancellation marks the first time in over a decade that Putin has skipped the event. Charles mains NPR News, Moscow.
23: Stocks finished higher on Wall Street today. The Dow was up three-tenths of a percent. This is NPR.
1: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. A hearing to consider pardoning two siblings convicted of sexually assaulting several children at their family daycare in Malden nearly 40 years ago got off to a contentious start. Gerald Emerald and Cheryl Emerald Lafave were not present at today's governor's council hearing. Counselor Marilyn Devaney criticized that decision.
5: I didn't know until I sat here that they weren't coming and I want that on the record, is wrong.
1: Devaney added that she had a personal connection to the case.
5: My friend's child was at that daycare, and she was sexually abused.
1: But James Salton, the attorney representing the Amaralts, argued the children were coerced into accusing his clients. The unjust conviction of the Amaralts, based on such tainted testimony, are a relic of an
6: earlier time, the product of widespread hysteria, and investigative
1: blunders. Governor Charlie Baker recommended the pardons last month. It's unclear when a decision may be made. The City of Boston is launching a grant program to help fill vacant storefronts in the city's commercial hubs. It will offer registered businesses up to $200,000 to open a new business or expand an existing one. The money can be used to cover rent, startup costs, or other expenses. In the first round, the city will choose 10 to 15 businesses that have been disproportionately affected by the pandemic. Applications are due by February 17th. The NBA is renaming its sixth man of the year trophy after Celtics legend John Havlicek. The NBA says during Havlicek's 16 years with Boston in the 60s and 70s, the Hall of Famer excelled off the bench like no player before him. The league's MVP award will be renamed the Michael Jordan trophy. It's 534.
15: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash uFund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC.
1: Sports, the Bruins host the Islanders tonight at the Garden. Celtics take on the Lakers out in L.A. And the forecast, mostly clear tonight. The lows around 24 degrees. Sunny tomorrow, a high of 37, mostly cloudy, and 43 degrees on Thursday. Right now, it's 37 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR.
7: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business, with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere. At UMA.com/NPR. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. Twenty-five thousand therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com/slash
8: public.
9: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm
8: Ari Shapiro. The dream of Argentina and Lionel Messi are alive at the World Cup. The South American soccer powerhouse defeated Croatia 3-0 to advance to Sunday's final. Messi shined with a goal and an assist. And now Argentina's star forward has a chance at his first ever World Cup title. NPR's Tom Goldman watched the game in Doha, Qatar and is on the line with us. Hey, Tom. Hi, Ari. There was talk that this would be a close match between Croatia and Argentina. What happened? (laughs)
26: Well, you know, actually it was close for the first 30 minutes in that neither team was doing much of anything. Both were playing cautiously and kind of sizing each other up. But then in the 32nd minute, Argentina struck and really never let up after that. 22-year-old forward Julian Alvarez started things off. He made a run toward the Croatian goal. The Croatian goalkeeper rammed into him. That led to an Argentina penalty kick, which Lionel Messi took and made. And that was a significant score, not just for his his team, but it tied Messi for the overall goal-scoring lead in the tournament with five. And then, minutes later, Alvarez scored himself. In the second half, he scored a second goal on a beautiful assist from Messi. They were the guys today, and that was really it. Croatia, which calls itself a bunch of fighters, never really fought back. And Ari, that's surprising. Argentina is very good, but Croatia was really tough and fought hard getting to the semifinal. I mean, they upset Brazil, but they just didn't show up for this one.
8: Tell us more about Messi's game. He scored, but it sounds like that wasn't the most impressive thing.
26: Yeah, well, that second-half play that I mentioned with Alvarez, I think it has to be, and I won't even stick arguably in there. It has to be his moment of this World Cup. He got the ball at midfield. He sprinted down the right side. He had a much bigger guy on him. Everyone's bigger than Messi. He's pint-sized, and the guy was jostling him, but Messi kept his balance. He juked this way and that. He cut toward the Croatian goal and flicked this perfect little pass to Alvarez, who was in front of the goal, and he kicked it in. It showed so much skill by Messi. He's really having a phenomenal tournament, and it certainly would fit if he and Argentina won it all on Sunday.
8: So let's talk about Sunday. Who's Argentina going to play in the finals?
26: Well, that will be decided tomorrow in a highly anticipated match between defending champion France and upstart Morocco, whose coach calls them the Rocky Balboa of this tournament. It's the first African Arab majority nation to play in a World Cup semi-final. They are surging right now. They have the entire Arab world behind them, but they're playing a seasoned French team with huge talent and they know how to win and that counts for a lot.
8: Let's just take a step back for a moment because this match was played at the same stadium where the American soccer journalist Grant Wall very suddenly and shockingly died on Saturday covering the quarterfinals. You were at that match. What was it like being back there tonight?
26: It was hard. Um, This is the first time some of the US journalists were seeing each other since Saturday when Grant Wall died and some of those closest to him have been holed up, not working much if at all. So tonight, There were hugs. One reporter I ran into as I was heading into the stadium. We were both there on Saturday, and he asked if I'd go in with him. And I think we were both relieved to have someone to kind of lean on, uh, to talk to. You know, everyone got a little therapy tonight. And inside the media center, there was a small shrine, flowers and books to sign and leave messages. And not just for Grant Wall. Sadly, he's one of three journalists who died during this World Cup. I gotta tell you, Ari, I've been doing this a long time and have been to a lot of these big events, but that is a first.
8: NPR's Tom Goldman in Doha, Qatar, thank you.
26: You bet.
9: As we just heard, the World Cup semifinals continue tomorrow when the defending World Cup champions France take on the biggest surprise of this year's tournament, Morocco the Atlas Lions haven't yet lost a match they're the first Arab and first African team to make it this far we heard elsewhere in the show from Morocco and now let's go to France which has a large Franco-Moroccan population and a complicated history between nations NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports from Paris
30: every time Morocco advanced in Qatar beating Canada Belgium Spain French-Moroccans poured into the streets across France to celebrate. The Champs-Elysees in Paris exploded in joy Saturday night when Morocco knocked out Portugal for a slot in the semifinals. We're so proud of the Lions today, says Samia Sherkawi. God willing, we'll go to the end. But it's hard because we love the French team too, she says. May the best win. Many Franco-Moroccans are conflicted, including popular actor Jamil Debbouze. I don't know how to live this event, he said. It's as if my mother were playing against my father. Wadi Dada was born and raised in France and is a prominent news anchor in Casablanca. He says the Moroccan team has brought the world together.
14: We have behind us... African population, Arabic population, all these
10: countries are supporting now Morocco. And you don't have this kind of solidarity in Europe or in South America.
30: Like Brazilians are not going to support Argentina, he says. Israelis and Palestinians have even come together in their common support for the team. There are thousands of Moroccan Jews in Israel.
25: And this is the power of Morocco, you know
30: talk in France of boycotting the World Cup due to Qatar's human rights record is nearly non-existent now. President Emmanuel Macron will be there at tomorrow's game. The airwaves in France are churning with excitement over the game as well as talk of identity and national allegiance. It's mostly in good fun, but a few on the far right have called Franco-Moroccans who don't support the French national team traitors, and they've also warned about potential riots after the match. The Morocco-France game will not be vengeful, says Nelly Latrous, head of the political service at France Info Radio. And that's a big difference with Algeria. Morocco's neighbor Algeria was a French colony for 130 years and fought a war for its independence. Morocco was a French protectorate for a much shorter time
20: and the breakup was
30: easier. This matters, says La Trousse.
20: it has actually kind of a, a consequence on Morocco team they going into the game uh, not considering that uh, France is a superior country it's a country with a historical friendship and relationship but it's just a country.
30: Though betting odds are on France, no one is discounting Morocco. The team has attracted talent by playing on Moroccan dual nationals loyalty to their origins, says Mark Owen, a soccer aficionado and journalist at Channel France 24
4: in Paris. They realized back in, say, 2014, even before then, that they could tap into uh, families uh, with talented uh, footballers in countries such as France. Uh, Spain, Italy.
30: One such player is Morocco defender Atraf Hakimi. Born and raised in Spain, he plays professionally for Paris Saint-Germain, alongside his close friend, a global soccer superstar.
4: Kylian Mbappe, possibly the most exciting football talent in the world today. And the thought of these two going face-to-face is incredibly interesting.
30: The winner of France and Morocco will face Argentina for the World Cup title on Sunday. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris.
8: And on tomorrow's show, we'll know the results of the semifinal match between Morocco and France, plus plenty of other coverage of the impact of the World Cup in Qatar before the finals this weekend. If you're not by your radio, try asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your station by name. And you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The U.S. Africa Leaders Summit opened today, 50 heads of state and various delegations are gathering here in Washington. President Biden is hoping to reset relations with the leaders of a continent who are also being heavily courted by countries like China and Russia. NPR's Michelle Kellerman was covering it for us. Hey, Michelle.
28: Hi there, Ari.
8: It's been eight years since the last summit was held in D.C. when President Obama invited African leaders to the White House. What took so long to invite them back?
28: Well, to be fair, COVID has been a big problem. We even had to get COVID tests to get into the convention center today. I see you've got um,
8: your bracelet. Exactly.
28: (laughs) Still on. Um, And up to now, the administration has really been focused on its policy toward China. Now, it is competing for influence with China in Africa, um, though Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, frames it a bit differently. Take a listen.
1: This is also not about a competition with others. This is not about saying uh, to our friends and partners, uh, you have to choose. This is about offering a genuine choice Uh, offering a genuine partnership and hopefully together building a, a race to the top, not a race to the bottom.
28: You know, he's gone on two trips to Africa so far. I was on both of those and heard him make this case repeatedly, talking about partnerships, investments in health and clean energy. Those are the kinds of things that the administration is focused on this week.
8: And what are the hopes of some of the African leaders?
28: Well, you know, they they come with um, their own individual agendas, of course. But Zambia's president, Hakainde Hichilema, talked about one of the overarching goals when he addressed the Council on Foreign Relations. He wants Africa to have a real seat at the table. Take a listen
23: 1.4 billion people have no voice in the security council not right i think we are agreed on these issues africans we believe africa must have a seat at the table of the g20 mm. we think so rightly so it should be g21
14: at
28: least. So South Africa is part of the G20, but the idea now is to have the African Union join to be that 21st, mm. to give Africans um, across the continent more of a voice. And President Biden, who speaks tomorrow, does support this. The other idea, of course, is Security Council reform, which has been, you know, talked about forever.
8: The U.S. talks about engaging with Africa as equals. But how much of this is really about offsetting the influence of China or of Russia on the continent?
28: Well, it is a big part of it. I mean, you heard what Blinken had to say. But just before he spoke, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin warned that same panel that China has an expanding um, footprint in Africa and that it's expanding that footprint on a daily basis. He called that troubling. He also said that Russia continues to peddle cheap weapons and employ mercenaries. Those were his words. And he called that destabilizing. African leaders have really made clear though that they don't wanna be pawns in some kind of new cold war. They rely on food and fertilizer from Russia. And China, of course, has made massive investments that they need in infrastructure projects on the continent.
8: It seems like every summit has some sort of awkward diplomatic moment or funny encounter. Anything to report from this one?
28: <laughs> well, so far, no. I mean, the president hasn't arranged any one-on-ones. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of leaders that have come here that are going to seek out um, FaceTime with him. And there are the protesters. I saw some of them today against um The leaders of Ethiopia and Uganda, though the protesters are very far away, there are massive security barricades for blocks around the convention center, so they're really being kept
5: at bay.
8: And traffic all over Washington, D.C. as a result. NPR's Michelle Kellerman, thank you.
5: Thank you.
9: You're listening to All Things Considered.
1: This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org, 36 degrees in Boston at 548. Coming up on All Things Considered, we'll hear about a new podcast, Pink Card, which chronicles Iranian women's fight against a ban on their attendance at soccer games. That's ahead here on WBUR.
7: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com way to wealth
1: In sports, the Bruins host the Islanders tonight at the Garden. Celtics take on the Lakers out in L.A. In the forecast, it'll be mostly clear tonight. The lows will be around 24 degrees. It should be mostly sunny tomorrow. The high's around 37. Mostly cloudy, 43 degrees on Thursday. Rain is likely on Friday. The high around 47. And the rain should give way to some sunshine on Saturday. The highs will be around 42 degrees. Right now, it's 36 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include
22: Uncommon Feasts, catering diplomatic receptions corporate celebrations milestone events and public galas in boston the north shore and midcoast maine artisanal cuisine and a focus on logistics uncommonfeasts.com gather around let's feast <music>
29: There was like 3,000 police officers and special forces fanning out across the country. And by the end of the day, they had raided 150 homes, arrested 25 people, and had put over 50 under investigation for basically plotting the overthrow of the German
2: government. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR.
8: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro.
3: And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. For more than 40 years, women could not attend soccer games in Iran. After Ayatollah Khomeini took power in 1979, the Islamic Republic barred women from stadiums. But the ban sparked resistance. Female soccer fans protested at the gates of Iran's national stadium. They clashed with police. They sneaked into games dressed as men. A new podcast from ESPN's 30 for 30 tells the story of this rebellion. It's called Pink Card and host and creator Shima Oliye told me her understanding of how important soccer is to women in Iran started with her mom. So when I
29: would ask my mom about memories of her childhood in Iran, I would get this kind of broken record answer of, oh my gosh. We would play soccer, and this one time I was at this party, and my brothers, like, didn't have a goalie, and so I replaced the goalie, and they were like, little Manu, she just scored a goal. And then I would ask for another story. I said, okay, do you have another memory of your childhood? And she would say, oh, yes, I was at a wedding, and I was in my party dress. And then, right after the cake, we played soccer, and then I scored this goal, and everyone was happy. And then she just could not stop talking about her joy of soccer which for me as her daughter was so frustrating <laughs> I, was, I was like can you tell me any other variation of this story of like anything you
19: experienced But this at that feels time?
3: this feels important to how you came to making a podcast about women and soccer and protest because it feels important for people to understand that Americans might not just how big a deal soccer is in Iran there's one other there's yeah. a there's a bit uh, i think it's in your third episode and we hear, I'll play it. It's just Sora describing Tehran shutting down for a big match. This is 1997. You know, Tehran is a big city. You never see this city quiet. There was no one on the street. No one on the street because they're because they're all home watching the game. So describe what it meant for women who were in Iran to be told, No, you can't go.
29: Iran at that time in that particular episode was coming back from the Iran-Iraq War. It had been devastated by the revolution, it had been devastated by a regime change, and it had been devastated by this war. And women had by this time been stripped of all their rights. And what happens with soccer, soccer was a big part of modernizing Iran. It It was thought of as one of the things that could bring Iran forward into the 20th century, Um, And lead other Western countries to become an imperial kind of nation and compete with the global heavyweights and women's rights basically improved right alongside the spread of soccer in the country, but soccer survived. And it, the reason it is so beloved in Iran, is the reason it's probably beloved across the globe, which is it feels like the great equalizer of a sport. Like you don't need a lot of money to become very good at it. You can play in dirt. You can use all kind of balls. Uh, you can make balls if for, like out of paper mache, which I interviewed someone who had done that. You know, you can make makeshift goals, and so. Everyone on the streets, like I interviewed so many Iranians and they would describe everyday life in Iran. It's just every corner people are playing soccer.
3: It's so interesting because it's as often happens with sports. It's about the sport. It's about, yeah, I want to go see the big game that everybody's going to be talking about. But it's also about power and about politics. And in this case, when you talk women, it's about
29: control. Yes, the Islam regime didn't even want soccer to be this powerful in the country, but they could not get rid of it because people would be so upset. So women, because they are banned from the stadium in 1981, it's one of the many public places they cannot enter, including buses, you know, parks, the ocean. There's places in the ocean where only men can go. The stadium is a way to have pride in your country, even after so much hardship. And by not allowing women to experience that in a live form, it was a cruel kind of punishment towards them. At that time, women's suppression and absence became the symbol that the Islamic regime had power and was doing well. Shima, how did,
3: how did you go about reporting this?
29: Could the women you wanted to speak with speak freely with you? Sara that you just played a clip from, from episode three, Mm. that is not her real name. She's actually still in Iran. There were times when I could not reach Sara for days at a time, and I thought something had happened to her. It's once you are known as someone who opposes the regime, you're never really safe again. It's so hard to trust anyone, including me. It was a total new level of of journalism for me. Like I just, I'd never um, reported on a population of people that could be killed at any time and who were still living in the trauma they were describing.
3: And your the podcast captures, the podcast captures the struggle, the resistance. It it also you also capture moments of joy, and I want to let people hear a little yeah. bit of that. There's this moment. Um, some of the activists you were following are actually about to get into a match. This is Iran about to play Korea, two
15: thousand nine.
3: That's them in the car, and then and then you capture when they actually get in. They're they're there. They get to see it. You always watch TV, but when you enter the actual place, it's totally different. The vibe, the sound, it, it's like from two dimension to three dimension. Shima, give us the context to understand that moment.
29: Yeah, so there's this ragtag group of women um, who are named the, the White Scarves because um, I kind of don't, don't want to give it away why they are named that, but you find out in episode three. And they make it their mission to infiltrate the National Stadium, which has been renamed Azadi, meaning Freedom mm-hmm. Stadium, as they are told they are no longer allowed inside so this group of women come up with like plots and schemes in order to infiltrate azadi stadium and through an extraordinary chain of just like happenstance and luck somehow they end up being police escorted into the stadium and um and through the three security gates and they watch this game and they recorded all of it. What's so exciting as an audio producer is to hear the sounds of girls inside Iran. One of the things growing up as an Iranian-American that I saw was I thought the sound of Iran was men screaming in the streets. You know, the hostage crisis had been seared in my brain and so that was what I thought the sound of Iran was. And Hearing from the Iranian girls, one of my dreams with this series was I wanted to replace our ideas of what Iran sounds like with the sounds of Iranian women and girls singing, laughing, protesting, giggling, like rebelling. And that's exactly um, what I got because the white scarf shared.
3: That is Shima Oliai, creator and host of the new podcast, Pink Card. Thank you very much.
29: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
8: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
16: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Heifer International, where people can donate gifts, whether it's a goat, chicken, or alpaca, Giving an animal helps struggling families. More at heifer.org slash NPR. And from Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive, information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. And from Procter and Gamble, maker of Vicks NyQuil Severe a nighttime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at vix.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station.
1: This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Just a minute before 6 o'clock coming up on All Things Considered, scientists announced a major breakthrough in nuclear fusion. They were able to coax more power out of an experiment than they put in. That's just ahead here on WBUR.
7: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental of Massachusetts. Passionate about improving oral health across the state and reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Visiting your dentist and taking care of your mouth could help protect your heart health and much more. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at ExpressYourHealthMA.org.
16: I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: This is really old-fashioned embezzlement. This is just taking money from customers, and using it for your own purpose
1: a congressional hearing was held today on the collapse of the cryptocurrency exchange ftx it's tuesday december 13th this is wbur's all things considered good evening i'm steve brown coming up we'll have the latest on the hearing as well as the arrest of the company's former ceo on charges of fraud also ahead scientists announced a major breakthrough in nuclear fusion They were able to coax more power out of an experiment than they put in. And President Biden has signed the Respect for Marriage Act into law at a White House ceremony. Stocks close the day again higher. Marketplace is coming up at 6.30 with all the day's business news. It's 6.01. News headlines are first.
0: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear.
17: Now! Let me sign the Respect for Marriage Act into law.
0: With a stroke of a pen, President Biden essentially guaranteeing federal equality for marriage before a crowd of thousands at a ceremony at the White House today. On the South Lawn, Biden saying the measure reflects growing acceptance of same-sex and interracial unions at a time some other basic human rights are being challenged.
17: Racism, anti-Semitism, homophobia, transphobia, they're all connected. But the antidote to hate is love. This law and the love it defends strike a blow against hate in all its forms.
0: The bill enshrines protections for marriage into federal law after the legislation cleared Congress with bipartisan support. The Biden administration is hosting leaders from 49 African countries, saying they want to partner with them on security and economic development. U.S. officials are also warning African states to be wary of China and Russia as we hear from NPR's Michelle Kellerman.
28: Biden administration officials say they want to be good partners with African nations to tackle challenges facing them, and they say this is not just about competing with China. But Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is clearly worried about China's influence on the continent.
24: We're witnessing the PRC expand its footprint on, on the continent uh, on a daily basis, and as they do that, they're also expanding their
16: economic influence.
28: And he says China is not transparent about that. He also warns that Russia continues to, quote, peddle cheap weapons and employ mercenaries across the continent in a destabilizing way. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Washington.
0: United Airlines is making a big order for Boeing 787 Dreamliner. NPR's David Shaper reports on its significance.
26: United is ordering the 787s to replace its aging fleet of 767 and 7 777 planes on long-haul routes as the airline expands the number of flights it offers to international destinations. United CEO Scott Kirby.
25: Today marks uh, another step, in a really big step, but another step in solidifying United's position as the flag carrier of the United States uh, and a leading airline around the globe.
26: United says the more fuel-efficient 787 can fly faster while reducing carbon emissions per seat by 25% compared to the older planes they will replace. David Shaper, NPR News, Chicago. Well, still high
0: by just about every measure. Inflation showed some signs of cooling last month, giving investors renewed hopes. A string of Fed interest rate hikes may be starting to do the trick. The government announced today its main inflation gauge rose 7.1 percent, the slowest increase since December of 2021. The core rate of inflation was at 6 percent. On Wall Street today, stocks gained ground, the Dow up 103 points. You're listening to NPR.
1: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Gambling regulators have awarded WinBet, the state's first license to offer online sports betting. The vote from members of the Massachusetts Gaming Commission was unanimous. At a meeting today, Commissioner Eileen O'Brien commended WinBet representatives for their cooperation during the licensing process.
16: Congratulations, and again, thank you to you for the the level of preparedness in the application and the level of candor and cooperation that you've given to us and to the IEB. Good luck.
1: The IEB is the Gaming Commission's enforcement arm. Winbet and Encore Boston Harbor Casino in Everett share a parent company. Last week, Encore won the state's first casino-based sports wagering license. Regulators expect the first bets will be placed in Massachusetts in January. Massachusetts LGBTQ advocates and allies are celebrating President Joe Biden's signature today on a bill that protects marriage equality into federal law. The Respect for Marriage Act passed through Congress with bipartisan support. Jansen Wu, executive director of the Boston-based advocacy group GLAD, called WBUR from the White House lawn today. Crowds were there celebrating ahead of the ceremonial signing He says this wouldn't be possible without the hard work of LGBTQ families showing America that love is love.
6: If you had asked me a few months ago uh, the level of Republican support, you know, I would not have guessed that it was where it is. And it just reflects the broad support for marriage equality
23: across the nation.
1: Massachusetts was the first state to legalize same-sex marriage back in 2004. A Natick police sergeant has pleaded guilty in connection with a sexual assault on a colleague. James Quilty and a dispatcher were attending an after-work gathering in 2020 when he inappropriately touched her several times. He pleaded guilty yesterday and his sentence includes three years of probation and registration as a sex offender. The Natick select board will meet Thursday to decide whether Quilty will remain with the department. The town has kept most of the details of the case secret for two years. WBUR is suing the town of Natick for documents, including its investigative report and a discrimination complaint filed by the victim. A plane took off from Marshfield this morning carrying a most unusual cargo.
25: Not many people realize, you know, we currently have 100 critically endangered sea turtles just flying over America currently.
1: That's Adam Kennedy. He's the director of the Sea Turtle Hospital at New England Aquarium, He says every summer, Kemp's Ridley Sea Turtles swim to Cape Cod Bay to enjoy the temperate waters there. But when they try to swim south of the winter, they get stuck in the crook of the Cape and start to freeze. They wind up at the hospital. Eventually, they're shipped to facilities on the Gulf Coast to rehab in a warmer climate. The plane carrying today's batch is part of a nonprofit aviation network that's worked on animal rescue for years. In sports, the Bruins will host the Islanders tonight over at the Garden. The Celtics take on the Lakers out in L.A. In the forecast, mostly clear tonight. The lows around 24 degrees. Sunny tomorrow, the high 37. Mostly cloudy, 43 degrees on Thursday. Rain is likely on Friday, the high 47 degrees. Right now it's 36 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR.
22: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Walton Family Foundation. Working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org.
8: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And
9: I'm Juana Summers. This morning, scientists announced a breakthrough in the field of nuclear fusion. Fusion is the process that powers the sun. Scientists have been struggling for decades to make it work here on Earth. NPR's Jeff Brumfield has this report on the breakthrough and what it could mean. To give you a
10: sense of just how long this took, listen to President Biden's science advisor, Arati Prabhakar. She remembers working on nuclear fusion in 1978.
3: They got a picture of this. I'm wearing my bell bottoms. I've got long black hair and I show up and I'm a 19-year-old kid and they give me a laser to work on.
10: Prabhakar was working at the Department of Energy's Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory and the job was this, to try and use that laser to squish lightweight atoms of hydrogen together until they fused. It's a process known as nuclear fusion, and it can generate enormous amounts of power with no greenhouse gases. She worked on it for the summer, and then she left.
19: I
3: went off and didn't do anything more about fusion, but the people I worked with and their successors kept going.
10: And today, decades later, they announced they'd finally done it. The breakthrough came at Livermore's $3.5 billion national ignition facility. Mark Herman is the scientist in charge. He says there's been lots of setbacks and disappointments along the way, but the team never gave up.
24: Ultimately,
8: that determination and grit is really what enabled this exciting success.
10: Last week, researchers pointed 192 laser beams at a tiny diamond sphere the size of a peppercorn. Inside was hydrogen fuel the lasers went zap, the peppercorn imploded, and the fuel ignited in a fusion burn that released more energy than the lasers put in. They measure energy in something called megajoules, and this fusion made about 3.15 megajoules, which sounds cool, but it's not exactly that simple, because lasers actually need a lot of juice from the electricity grid to work. The laser pulled
11: a more than 300 megajoules off the grid. And then the fusion energy that came out was, again, about 3 megajoules.
10: In other words, the facility still used way more power overall than it produced. Ryan McBride is a nuclear engineer at the University of Michigan who wasn't involved in this breakthrough. He says today's milestone is important.
12: It is a big scientific step.
10: But he says there are several more obstacles to making laser fusion work. To generate steady power would require lasers to zap multiple. Multiple pellets every second.
12: So it's like, brrr, you know, that's, that's a lot of pulsing. There's a debris field left as these things are blasted and you'd have to like clear that debris and then inject another one, have all the lasers hit it.
10: Day after day for months and years, McBride says he doubts laser fusion could produce electrical power
12: anytime soon. It's many decades as far as I can see.
10: Meanwhile, the U.S. is seeking to cut its greenhouse gas emissions in half by 2030, a target that looks to be too close for fusion to help. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News.
8: The now disgraced golden boy of crypto was arrested at the request of the U.S. government at his home in the Bahamas last night. And today we learned that Sam Bankman-Fried faces more than half a dozen criminal charges related to the collapse of his crypto empire and civil charges from financial regulators. NPR's David Gura is following this fast-moving case. And David, uh, a lot of pieces of this story have fallen into place in the last 24 hours. What's the picture that emerges when you put them all together?
13: Well, what we have from prosecutors is a portrait of somebody who seemed to have had no hesitation taking customers' money to finance his own investments. And they allege he also used customers' money to buy luxury real estate, to make campaign contributions, and to try to plug holes that kept getting bigger and bigger, as we saw this huge drop in the value of cryptocurrencies earlier this year. Gary Gensler, the chair of the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, said Bankman-Fried, quote, built a house of cards on a foundation of deception while telling investors that it was one of the safest buildings in crypto. And, you know, Ari, there's another picture that's emerging. It's one of a very aggressive, very fierce government response. Remember, it was just a month ago Bankman-Fried stepped down and FTX filed for bankruptcy Prosecutors seem pretty outraged by the number of people who may be victims of fraud here and by the amount of money that seems to have just disappeared. So far, FTX says it can't find $8 billion. So this is shaping up to be a big battle for law enforcement and for regulators, Ari, and it's one they very clearly want to win. What are they most concerned about? What are the biggest charges? Beckman-Fried is accused of defrauding investors in FTX and customers, many of whom were small-time individual investors. And Beckman who was a big political donor, has also been charged with violating campaign finance laws. You know, a lot's been made of the sprawling nature of FTX and the complexity of crypto. Well, at a news conference this afternoon, Michael Driscoll, the FBI assistant director in charge of this case, said none of that matters. This case
10: is about fraud. Fraud is fraud. It does not matter the complexity of the investment scheme. It does not matter the amount of money involved. If you mislead and deceive, to take what does not belong to you we will hold you accountable
13: and Benjamin Fried faces some serious charges here and this is the type of case that could land a person in prison for decades At the heart of this indictment and of the complaints from regulators is this cozy relationship between FTX and Bankman-Fried's private crypto hedge fund. It was called Alameda Research. What's alleged is there was no wall whatsoever between these two institutions. Bankman-Fried was integrally involved in both of them and money from FTX customers was used to pay Alameda's debts, to pay its bills, really to keep it afloat. Well, the SEC says there was no meaningful distinction between FTX customer funds and Alameda's own funds, and Bankman-Fried used Alameda as, quote, his personal piggy bank.
8: You know, Sam Bankman-Fried was pretty talkative in the days leading up to his arrest. Now, given the seriousness of these accusations, how has he been handling things?
13: He appeared in a courtroom today in the Bahamas where FTX is headquartered, and negotiations started over his bail and his extradition. Benjamin Fried was supposed to testify before Congress today at a hearing on the collapse, and that hearing before the House Financial Services Committee went on without him. It was our first chance to hear from John Ray, the new CEO of FTX, and he painted a bleak picture of the work ahead for himself.
0: I've just never seen an utter lack of uh, record keeping. Uh, absolutely, no internal
13: controls whatsoever. As for Bankman-Fried, his lawyer said in a one-sentence statement, Bankman-Fried is, quote, reviewing the charges with his legal team and considering all of his legal options. Meanwhile, the investigations continue. And at his news conference this afternoon, Ari, U.S. Attorney Damian Williams spoke directly to people who may have participated in the activities that led to FTX's implosion. I would strongly encourage you to come see us, he
8: said, before we come see you. NPR's David Gurra, thanks a lot. Thanks, Ari.
9: South Africa's president, Cyril Ramaphosa, avoided impeachment today. This comes after weeks of uncertainty following a corruption scandal that involved cash that was hidden in and stolen from a couch that belonged to Ramaphosa. But there are other political challenges awaiting the president. To help us sort all of this out, we're joined by Justice Malala. He's an author and political commentator who splits his time between Johannesburg and New York. Welcome.
14: Thank you. It's good to be here.
9: Good to have you. So Ramaphosa survived possible impeachment, but can you just walk us through what brought South Africa to this point?
14: This year, uh, a man who he had removed from being the spy boss alleged that Ramaphosa had covered up a theft at his farm. It seems as if it was 580,000 U.S. dollars. And the big question is, what is the president of the country doing with 580,000 US dollars stuffed in his cart?
9: Ramaphosa is someone who ran on an anti corruption platform back in 2018. He was also a close ally of Nelson Mandela. I know that you're in New York right now, but what have you heard from South Africans about what they think about the story that you've just shared with us and about the development today that he avoided impeachment?
14: Many South Africans are appalled at the details of this. And many South Africans at the same time are saying, what's really going on here? So there's a bittersweet reaction to this that, well, you know, he's won this one, but he hasn't really taken South Africans into his confidence and said, my fellow countrymen, my fellow countrywomen, this is what happened And I'm sorry, he's hunkered in, he's in his bunker and has not communicated for six months about any of this. You mentioned
9: that Ramaphosa has kept a very low profile recently. We've heard that he even considered resigning. How stable are things for him now? What is the future outlook for his leadership?
14: The African National Congress holds its conference every five years. It chooses a new leader at these conferences. He served one term as leader of the party. And um, he's running for a second term. And so Cyril Ramaphosa faces this one fight that's coming up. My view is that after his win today, he will win again. He will be re-elected as president of the ANC and he will continue. However, I do believe that this scandal has tainted him hugely. There are seven different state enforcement agencies which are investigating. So it will continue to dog his uh, presidency going forward. And I suspect down the line, he will be forced to resign. So
9: taking a step back here and thinking about this big picture, what do these recent events tell you about the strength of South Africa's democracy?
14: First of all, you have the chattering classes, the intellectuals, business leaders, all saying, Cyril Ramaphosa is all we've got. He's the best guy to lead right now. And it's shocking, to be honest, that we only have one a person we think is capable of protecting the institutions, holding up our democracy, that if this one person leaves, then we have no one else. But the second one for me is that I think it's the end of the road for Nelson Mandela's party, the African National Congress. I think that it has been engulfed by corruption, by infighting, and that it will diminish and maybe even die over the next 20 years.
9: That is Justice Malala, author and political commentator. Thank you so much for joining us today.
14: Absolute pleasure. Thank you.
8: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
1: This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening. I'm Steve Brown, 36 degrees in Boston at 619. Ahead on All Things Considered, President Biden has signed the Respect for Marriage Act into law at a White House ceremony. That's coming up next here on WBUR.
7: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Chevalier Theatre in Medford Square. Featuring Il Devo, a new day tour with special guest Stephen Labrie, March 1st at 8. ChevalierTheatre.com.
1: On Wall Street, stocks closed the day higher. The Dow was up three-tenths of a percent at... 34,109. S&P 500 rose 3 quarters of a percent to close at 4020 and the Nasdaq was up about 1% at the end of the day at 11257. In business news, Cambridge-based Moderna is reporting progress in its efforts to create a vaccine for skin cancer. The company says a trial has found people taking its vaccine and immunotherapy had a 44% reduction in the risk of death or cancer recurrence that's compared to those who Only had immunotherapy. Moderna is working with the pharmaceutical company Merck on the combined treatment. It uses the same technology behind COVID 19 shots. Another trial is planned next year. Moderna stock rose 21% in trading today.
15: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Buckaloo's General Store. Gifts, specialty foods, craft beer, wine, plus festive custom baskets for holiday giving in Melrose and at Buckaloo'sGeneralStore.com.
4: Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org
1: cars. Looking for the perfect holiday gift? Tickets to WBUR's City Spaces winter season are now on sale. You can check out the lineup of new and returning guests and get tickets at WBUR.org events.
22: WBUR supporters include Comcast Business. Whether your business is starting or growing, Comcast Business is working to build a network to keep customers connected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities.
9: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And
8: I'm Ari Shapiro. Today, President Joe Biden signed into law a landmark piece of legislation that recognizes same-sex and interracial marriages.
17: For most of our nation's history, we denied interracial couples and same-sex couples from these protections. We failed. We failed to treat them with equal dignity and respect. And now the law requires that interracial marriage and same-sex marriage must be recognized as legal in every state in the nation.
8: This is the kind of celebration we would not have seen at the White House a decade ago. To talk about Biden's evolution and the countries, we turn to NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro. Hey, Domenico. Hi, Ari. Let's start with President Biden's evolution on same-sex marriage. He has had a long career in politics. How have his views changed over time?
18: Yeah, and they have changed. I mean, the president is someone who went from, in the 1990s, for example, voting in favor of the Defense of Marriage Act, which defined marriage as between a man and a woman, to pushing for this bill, the Respect for Marriage Act, which repeals DOMA. You know, here was Biden in 2008 during the vice presidential nominee's debate. Asking the question is the late journalist Gwen Ifill.
19: Let's try to avoid nuance, Senator. Do you support gay marriage?
17: No. Barack Obama nor I support redefining from a from a civil side what constitutes marriage. We do not support that.
18: But just four years later, not that long, here was Biden on NBC's Meet the Press.
17: I am absolutely comfortable with the fact that men marrying men, women marrying women and heterosexual men and women marrying are entitled to the same exact rights, all the civil rights, all the civil liberties. And quite frankly, I don't see much of a distinction
18: uh, beyond that. I mean it's quite the turnabout you know and this was a seminal moment for biden's position and the countries and it essentially forced president obama just days after that to take the same stance and change the conversation on same-sex marriage that was such a quick turnaround what led to that rapid evolution For one, public opinion was moving. You know, Democrats had been really delicately walking this line, many calling for civil unions, but not marriage explicitly after George W. Bush in 2004 used the issue as a way to fire up the evangelical right, which helped him get reelected. You know, by 2012, though, the country was in a pretty different place. The split was, uh, you know, still there was a split uh, trending towards support. And Biden, you know, as he's known to do, spoke pretty bluntly. Uh, Since then, the shift, though, has been dramatic. Our latest NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll, which is going to be released Thursday, shows 68 percent are in favor of same-sex marriage. Uh, You know, it was still a bit of a surprise, I have to say, though, that the bill got through because it wasn't clear they could get the 60 votes to overcome a filibuster because Republicans really have been much slower to embrace same-sex marriage. Uh, But a dozen Republican senators voted for it, 39 Republicans in the House did too, and it's really reflective of how the country, even Republicans, are changing even though GOP support um, you know, has been much less uh, in our surveys, less than a majority.
8: Art, right, we've been describing this as now a law that protects same-sex and interracial marriage. Beyond that top line, explain exactly what it does and does not do.
18: Yeah, not everyone's celebrating this as the be-all end-all, and it's not. You know, this was largely passed because of the threat that the conservative supermajority at the Supreme Court after the Dobbs ruling that took away the right to an abortion, you know, could overturn other rights, including same-sex marriage. You know, but while this bill gives federal benefits to same-sex couples, make sure those marriages are recognized across state lines, it doesn't guarantee that states won't deny marriage licenses to gay couples again if the court overturns it. You know, and I have to say, one of the most overlooked things in this bill, you know, isn't just about same-sex marriage, but also interracial marriages, easy to overlook, because 94% in the latest polling say they approve, but majorities didn't approve until the late 1990s, which isn't that long ago for some of us.
8: (laughs) NPR's Domenico Montanaro, thank you. You're
18: welcome.
9: If you like to root for the underdog, maybe you have already been following Morocco. The men's soccer team is now the first from an African or Arab nation to reach the semifinal of a World Cup. They've just knocked out powerhouses Spain and Portugal. Tomorrow, they look to take down France. And nowhere are fans more excited than in Morocco. Aziza Sibaha is a senior TV host for France 24 and joins us now from Rabat. Welcome. Hi, Wana. So can you just describe for us what it has been like there in Morocco with this historic success that the men's team is having? How are fans reacting?
20: Oh, it's just crazy here, actually, this historical achievement. Everybody's smiling, like everybody's talking about having faith. And now they believe in it, and they want to go all through to till the finals. So I think that the national squad shred a huge glass ceiling. So
9: this has been an incredible run for Morocco. As we mentioned, this team is the first African and Arab team to go this far in the World Cup. Have people been soaking that in?
20: Oh, yes. And uh, if I may just uh, remind you that Walid Regragui, the coach, said this morning we didn't come here just to say that we are the first Arab and African country to get to the semifinals. We want to go all through to the finals. So now, like everybody is believing in it and it's really changing. All the Arab countries and all the African countries are now behind this squad. And I think that that's one of the things that can help and that what make the difference till now, I think. You
9: know, we have all seen these scenes after matches when some of the players run to the stands to celebrate with their mothers and they're incredibly heartwarming. Has that affected people back home seeing those lovely moments that we've all watched?
20: Absolutely. Actually, the Moroccan coach wanted this time to bring the moms uh, with the players. I think that he wanted to give a certain human dimension and a family dimension, and that talks absolutely to the Moroccans. Uh, A lot of people know here in Morocco what's the relationship between all men and their moms. Uh, So people keep identifying themselves to the players and feeling exactly the same thing. But on the other hand, also, I met with a lot of moms, actually, on the street, just a cheering for the team. And they were like, they are our children. And now uh, that helps also shifting the mindset toward women as supporters as well.
9: You know, this has obviously been an incredibly exciting World Cup for supporters of the Moroccan team, but it is hard not to think about past colonial ties in Wednesday's face-off between France and Morocco, but also in the previous matches with Spain and Portugal. Have fans brought those tensions up to you when you've been speaking with them?
20: A lot of players are French and Moroccan, but it's all about football more than anything else. And they want to face the defending champions. They want to face some of them, like Ashraf Hakimi, for example, is playing in the PSG with with Mbappé, with Kylian Mbappé. So he will be facing his best friend, for example. Mm. They want to face the champions tomorrow.
9: There is a lot on the line for Morocco tomorrow in the semifinal match. Just generally speaking, how are people preparing for this match versus France tomorrow? What's that look like there? Well,
20: there are there are some fun zones here in, in Casablanca, for example. But here in Rabat, a lot of cafes, a lot of restaurants, a lot of hotels are also sitting in fun zones with a huge screen so that everybody can uh, watch them. There are a lot of places where we can see the flags everywhere. I, I'm seeing a lot of people with the national jersey as well. And that's, that's a good thing think also, because I think that people um, in this time exactly, even politically, internationally, they needed some good vibes and they're getting them from the national team in Morocco.
9: That's Aziza Sibaha, senior TV host for France 24 in Rabat, Morocco. Thank you so much for being here and hey, good luck tomorrow. Thank you.
8: This is NPR News.
7: We are funded by you, our listeners and by Whitehead Institute. Join director Ruth Lehman on January 26th in conversation with science writer Carl Zimmer wi.mit.edu/events.